This is Jocko Podcast number 33, with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. People say there is a line. There's a line between good and evil, right and wrong, between light and dark. And that's a nice, clean way to think of things. But the line can be hard to recognize. It can get blurry. It can get twisted by emotion and passion and by one's own ego. And in war, that line is tested. It's pressed. It becomes even more blurry. It gets crossed and violated and sometimes abandoned. And we can see that throughout history and we've talked about it here in the Japanese slave camps in Rwanda and My Lai. Those are a few examples, but there are thousands of them. And I've seen the line. And I've seen men approach the line, driven, filled with fury and with hate. And that fury needs an outlet. And if it gets a purchase, it can become unstoppable. But it can also be controlled. Because there is a counter to all that evil. There is the man that steps up and says, no. No, not today, not here, not now. We will not do that. And the dichotomy of leadership and the dichotomy of war is so hard to balance. Soldiers are trained and tasked to kill. And yet they are also trained to be humane and fair and moral and good. So how does a warrior reconcile those opposing forces, that dichotomy? How does he know to balance? God damn. Thoughts rush through my mind as I try to decide what to do. Women, old men, and kids, obviously non-combatants. But this is a free fire zone. There are not supposed to be civilians in this area. Yeah, but dinks occasionally ignore those warnings about free fire areas. Maybe they're the point element for Viet Cong or NVA traveling behind them. Maybe they're supposed to give the warning if stopped. It's happened before. In that case, some of my men could come under fire and be killed or wounded. 4-6 killed that one dink last evening, and he had a Thompson. There was a whole squad of Kong in that group. 
There was some incoming fire when we made the LZ. A dink tried to cross, cross the dike last night. These people look innocent al- enough. They may be carrying supplies for the Kong in the area, food and or ammo. It's a free fire zone. Everyone is supposed to be considered enemy. I'm responsible for my men. They'll get killed if I make the wrong decision. These dinks coming toward us mean nothing to me. My men mean everything. What if the dinks aren't innocent? My men depend on me to keep them alive. I spoke softly to the men around me. It's a lick on them. When I give the order, open fire. I brought up the M16 to sight in on the dinks. Spag was standing to my right, his M60 machine gun supported on his hip by a sling around his neck and shoulder. He reached over and touched my arm. His whispered voice reflected the agony of doubt in his face. No, sir, you can't. Kids. Women. He motioned toward the file of people coming towards us. I felt ashamed. Spag was right. Wait one. I whispered to the men around me. I'll call for them to surrender. I felt relieved. Capturing them was the best solution. If they were the point for a VC group, I would just make sure none of us was exposed to fire when we captured this point. The dinks were almost to the intersection. I stepped through the brush with some of my men. Dung Lui! Dung Lui! I warned. They were only 10 to 20 meters from us. They all glanced at us, standing with our weapons trained on them. We had them dead to rights. They had no cover and no place to run to. A perfect capture situation. Almost in mid-stride, they all moved with astonishing speed. The two boys in the point split up. The one ran past us, heading down the trail past the schoolhouse. The other boy, the woman, the old men started running back toward the bridge. Stop, stop, Dung Loy, Dung Loy, I yelled to no avail. I could not order the men to run after them. It could be a trap. Neither could I let them get away. Why were they running? In the split second those thoughts ran across my consciousness, I gave the order to open fire. An irrevocable wave of death swept in front of us. After the initial burst of gunfire, I yelled, cease fire. The two women survived long enough to cross the bridge and enter one of the hooches. Three of my men crossed over the bridge and threw grenades in the hooches. We hurriedly looked over the bodies on the trail since they were lying in the open and we had no desire to be caught exposed. The men reported that some of the dead had been carrying hand grenades in their ammo and ammo packs. I felt somewhat relieved. Those supplies could have been for could not have been for anyone but the Kong. I received a report from the squad down the trail. The firing had alerted them barely fast enough to fire at the teenager running toward them down the trail. Someone hit him in the shoulder and knocked him down. Surprisingly, the boy had jumped up and run past the squad to safety somewhere in the brush. I had no pleasure in reporting to Delta Six that we had killed six dinks and one wounded. I knew he would ask how many weapons we had captured. I stared at the gray horizon for a long time before answering that the dinks were not carrying weapons, only supplies and grenades. I felt low. This putrid war. I thought of so many ways I could have done it differently. So easy to think afterward. After all, now I knew there was no dink squad behind on the trail. This episode would be the darkest of my career. 
I called my men together for a march up the slight hill to Delta Six's position, forcing the dinks out of my mind. Now that's from a book that we're looking at tonight. It's called The Killing Zone, My Life in the Vietnam War by Frederick Downs. Now Vietnam, it was a hard war, obviously a wretched war for many reasons. And the My Lai Massacre is almost the apex, almost the pinnacle. It almost seems like the essence of the war in many respects. At least it's viewed that way, and it did have a huge strategic impact. It was devastating to the war effort, and something that should always be remembered is that tactical operations can have strategic impact. Like Hackworth said, the My Lai Massacre probably did more to end the war and hasten our departure from Vietnam than anything our communist enemy did. And in a similar vein, in the war I was in, in the mistreatment of the prisoners in Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq and the photographs that showed that mistreatment likely did more to fuel the insurgency in that country than anything Al-Qaeda did. Tactical actions can have strategic impact. And, and that actually happens in business too. One bad customer experience for a customer that's got some reach and there can really be a strategic impact. And what the frontline troops do really does matter. And what the frontline troops do is based on how they are led. And clearly, in My Lai, there was a total lack of leadership. Especially from the moral and ethical perspective. But this was not the norm. Not by any stretch. And, and like I said, it's viewed sometimes as the representation of what the Vietnam War was like, but it's not. And, and I said this when we talked about My Lai. Yeah, America has done monstrous things in our history. But we most certainly are not monstrous. We are an amazingly benevolent nation, especially now, perhaps even to our own detriment. But that's why I wanted to talk about this book, The Killing Zone, to show the challenges of the Vietnam War and how American troops handled those challenges and pressures on a day-to-day -day basis and how they sometimes cross that line, if only for a moment, but then most of the time brought themselves back from the brink of darkness into the light. Now let's go back to the book here. Going to the beginning, when Fred Downs, young lieutenant in the army, is flying into Vietnam. At 23.30 hours, the Continental Big Bird with the Golden Tail DC-8 dropped through the night sky into the landing pattern over the black landscape of Vietnam. 23 hours earlier, 165 of us had been crammed aboard the commercial jet at the airport near San Francisco. I looked around the cabin at the officer and enlist, 
at the officers and enlisted men who had come from all over the United States to catch this flight from San Francisco. How would they return? How would I return? I had graduated six months earlier from the U.S. Army's OCS program at Fort Benning, Georgia, and now I was soon to be leading men into combat. I was 23 years old, and I had been trained to lead. Physically, I thought I was ready. Mentally, I was as confident of myself as any young officer could be. But underneath my confidence were the ever-present questions, worry, and curiosity about war and my role in it. I was eagerly looking forward to finding answers. I would not have to wait long. So we've talked about that before. When you're stepping into a leadership role, you're not going to, there's a good chance you're not going to feel 100% confident. And that's okay. So he gets to Vietnam, he gets assigned to uh, 4th Division, and he actually, he hadn't heard of 4th Division, he hadn't seen it in the papers, and he kind of is asking, hey, why, why, why haven't I seen that in the papers, what are they doing? And he said, there's no reporters up there where they're working, it's too rough for them. And he's kind of saying, you know, I want to get, I want to make sure I, I get it on. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the old timers are telling him, one of them says, you'll get a belly full of fighting up there, son, if that's what you want. So, it's one of those be careful what you wish for scenarios. And uh, I thought this was pretty pretty interesting. You know, we talk about Hackworth and the, the hardcore Recondos as the salute and reply. The reply is no fucking slack. So, here's what they had here. It was SOP to salute in the, f- in the company area, but not in the field. When an enlisted man saluted, he would say, Golden Dragon, sir. The officer would return the, the salute with, Right of the line. I asked about this. They told me that, it, that the 1st of the 14th, that's the, that's the division he's with, the 1st of the 14th was an old infantry regiment steeped in tradition. During the Boxer Rebellion in China, the unit had fought bravely. Afterward, they adopted the symbol of a golden dragon. The other part of the salute came from some some battle in the Civil War. Right before a large battle, a staff officer asked a general where to put the 1st to the 14th. The general had roared back, put them to the right of the line where they belong. The right of the line is where a leader traditionally puts his best men and units. This comes down through military history when a man fought with his shield and sword. The right arm or sword arm was unprotected. The best fighter was put to the right to protect the sword arm of the man on his left. Only the most trusted and best fighters held the position to the right. Legit. So he's there in the, in kind of in the in the uh, headquarters area for a little while, and then he gets his indoctrination, and then gets flown out. He's flies out into the field into where he's going to be operating out of. He gets up there, and this is this is straight out of a movie right here. Bugs swarmed around my face. I squatted and looked at the men, who looked right back at me. It was my first view of American GIs who had spent several days in the jungle. I stood there in sparkling crisp fatigues, brand new boots, new rifle, clean-shaven, fresh haircut. I even smelled clean. My helmet camouflage cover didn't have a mark on it, nor did I. The two men opposite me were filthy. 
their fatigues were torn, and they had scratches all over their skin, two or three days of growth on their beard, and dark circles under their eyes. They looked tired, and they smelled the high heaven. So that's that's right out of a movie. The boot lieutenant coming in to take over. He's in his pressed camis looking all squared away. And these guys look like they're living in hell. And they introduce the, the company commander. And this guy, you're going to see throughout the book, this guy, Captain Sells, was an ROTC officer, 26 years old, son of son of a father killed in Korea. So that's, you know, the guy's... Dad got killed in Korea, and he's during the Vietnam War. He's joining up and and leading men in a company. He's a company commander, and if you remember from from the book Platoon Leader, you remember he didn't even meet the company commander. So his direct boss didn't even meet him for weeks. He'd been in the field for weeks before he even met him. And here's this this company commander, obviously much more squared away, walks him around, introduces him to everybody, giving him a heads up. You know, this is the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, he's getting told, look, there's enemy all around. And you might have heard in that intro piece that I read, I was talking about Delta 6. And and here's a little piece about that. He informed me that his radio signal was Delta 6. So that's the Delta Company Commander's Delta 6. Lieutenant Smart, the first platoon leader, was Delta 1-6. The second platoon leader was Delta 2-6. Sixes were the commanders of the unit. And this is a tradition that holds true in the in the Army and the Marine Corps today. And it's pretty cool when you're when you're in the field. You'd hear someone call for the six, and and that means that we want to talk to the guy that's in charge out there. Their seconds in command were known as fives. For instance, Delta One Five was the first platoon sergeant. And this is, uh, you know, goes on to talk a little bit more about Captain Sells, who's asking him about his family. He's getting to know him, and he's, you know, uh, uh, Downs had a, had a wife and two little girls back in Illinois, and so. Again, you're getting the impression that Sells is a guy that's trying to get to know his people and, and learn about them, which is which is the way a leader, what a leader should be doing. Now these guys are out, and he's talking again. This is this is something straight out of a straight out of a movie. Darkness quickly engulfed us. My hooch mate watched in astonishment as I pulled out mosquito netting and spread it over my poncho liner and air mattress. <laughs> They were a gas that I carried so much extra weight. No, I answered. This is all the good stuff. Their amazement grew as I revealed three changes of underwear and fatigue clothes. Wait until the next day, they scoffed, when the sun, sun and heavy pack will drag me down. The jungle would exact a toll for every ounce I carried. We'll see, I answered. <laughs> Not a good answer. Lieutenant Smart said, yeah, you'll see. You'll see that the only change of clothes you'll carry is be an extra pair of socks. You'll learn to live in one set of jungle fatigues until they rot off you or rip too badly to wear. That's that. That actually reminds me when we were in uh, my my first deployment to Iraq. We uh, we had you know three sets of camis and just warm rotated them. In Ramadi, that the op tempo was so high and and the conditions of fighting, we had to order new camis within within. A couple weeks of being there, guys had destroyed camis. You run across the street, they're getting, you know, dragging people, and they were just ruining their their camis. So that was another indicator in Ramadi that we were in a totally different scenario than I was on my first deployment to Iraq. Mm-hmm. Back to the book. My first days on combat control, combat patrol introduced me to the vicissitudes of war. Ten foot deep punji pits. Wait a minute vines that collected around the feet and legs until their combined strength stopped you and you had to say, wait a minute. 
while you untangled or cut yourself loose. The hot sun beating down us, on us as we marched around with 70-pound packs, the sweat pouring off us, the bugs so thick our faces that, around our faces that we sometimes inhaled them, the, and the physical agony of forcing tired muscles to keep going. It was a search-and-destroy mission, which meant we searched all the hooches we found and then burned them down. Whether a single farmer's hooch or a whole village, all were burnt. The few Vietnamese we found in the area were women, children, and old men who had been left behind. When we started to burn their particular hooch, they would start wailing, crying, and pulling at our clothes. We didn't harm the people, but the orders were to destroy all the dwellings, so we did. The first time I saw a Vietnamese family go into hysterics when their hooch was set on fire, I, w I was unsure of whether burning their home would accomplish our mission. The mission was to deny the enemy use of the hooches, to destroy any food we found, and to teach the people a lesson about supporting the enemy. But I quickly got used to it and accepted that this was one way to win the war. And that's, you know, if you, if you talk to anybody... Anybody knowledgeable about true counterinsurgency, this is not a great plan to go in and basically abuse the populace. Now, if you know that they're supporting the, the insurgents, sure, you want to you want to disrupt that. But oftentimes they're not dis they're not supporting the insurgents because they want to. They're they're supporting the insurgents because they're fear for their lives. That's the way it was in, in Iraq when when I was there. So. Back to the book, Sheldon Brand took the opportunity later that day to explain in, the in this unit, everyone called the enemy, and ultimately all outsiders, dinks. So that's their word that they use. And I found this interesting. He says, ultimately all outsiders. And you've, you've heard me and you've heard Leif and in the book, we, we, we talk about moosh. That's what we called the enemy. We called the enemy moosh. But what's interesting is here it says all outsiders. And that's exactly what we did. If, when we were getting resistance from you know, up the chain of command, down the chain of command, guess what we called them? Moosh. We'd say, oh, the boss is saying this. I can't believe that moosh. So it became the word that we used every, to all outsiders. And that's, that's unit cohesion, and there's some dehumanization of the enemy there, obviously, but the fact that you end up using the same slang word to, de to describe anybody that's against you right. is, is, is interesting. Back to the book, it turned out that the enemy started calling us dinks first, because it was an insulting or demeaning term that meant hairy man from the jungle. We had just turned the word around and started calling them dinks, at least that was the story. I don't know if that's true or not. I never, never read, didn't do any research on that one. I saw the face of the enemy for the first time. He'd been machine gunned down by one of our gun crews. The powerful weapon had thrown a hail of bullets into the brush where we had spotted him. When we got to his position, I saw for the first time the death of a soldier. The machine gun crew had done a good job. The young soldier's green combat uniform body was riddled with bullets. He was sprawled across his bicycle with his face toward the sky. At last I had before me the enemy I had been trained to destroy. He was a young man for whom the war and life had ended. One evening a jet was returning to base and needed a target to get rid of his unexpended bomb load. The captain called the forward air controller and gave him the coordinates of a sniper 300 meters away who had been pestering us off and on for three days. As the jet pulled up after dropping napalm on the sniper's position, we could hear the pop-pop of the sniper firing at the jet. The men talked about the gall of that sniper as I watched the napalm burn itself out. 
I wondered what would drive a man to stand up to death in so remarkable a manner. Again, you're dealing with a hardened enemy. You're getting napalm dropped on your position. And as you burn to death, you're trying to shoot down a jet fighter. Back to the book. Sheldon Brand was worth his weight in gold to me in running that platoon. He even introduced me to the platoon motto. It's a lick. A lick is a lick on a young man's ass, Lieutenant. You remember when you were a kid and you did something wrong or something got fucked up that you got the blame for? The old man would give you a licking with a switch or a belt? Yeah, I sure remember getting lickings. Well, when something goes wrong, it's a lick on you. You see, anything that goes wrong will give you a lick. And over here, you'll get plenty of licks. My RTO was the other most important man to the platoon. His job was to carry the radio and stick to me like a shadow. The radio was our link with literally everything outside our platoon, from supplies to survival. Without a working radio and a good RTO, a platoon leader and the platoon were as good as lost in this war. My RTO, man, a skinny kid 5 feet 11 inches tall, was next to perfect for his job. He loved to know what was going on, and his job was akin to the central switchboard operators. So that's the RTO. That was actually when I was an enlisted SEAL. That's what I was. So I, was, uh, I always had that same attitude. When you're, the, when you're the RTO, you always know what's going on. Because the, the officer's telling you, you're right next to him, you're listening to what he's saying, so you always know what's going on. And that was a real good education for me. Hmm. Growing my whole career, always being next to the, to the guy that was running the platoon. Talking a little bit about the troops here. My squad leaders were first squad Delk, a tall cowboy type from Wyoming. Second squad Porter, a, light, a slightly built black from East St. Louis. Third squad, Jose, a skinny, short, swarthy Puerto Rican. Fourth squad, Gallagher, a medium-built redhead from the New England states. And, of course, there was the platoon medic, Doc. The platoon makeup was whites, blacks, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Americans, and an Indian. And a Japanese-American. All of them from 18 to 21 years old. In a combat platoon, we were evaluated by our peers on our ability to help the platoon survive and not on our racial backgrounds. A combat platoon pulled together and was tight with each other, with no room for the soldier who wouldn't do his share. So, I, you know, it's always good to just point that out. These are just people from a cross-section of America. And these, these are pretty stereotypical, right? A cowboy from Wyoming. It, you know, this is, this is stereotypical stuff. And that's, that's one thing that the military... So when I joined, I grew up in New England, right? When I joined the Navy and I got to California and I went to the enlisted man's club on nab coronado the gator gardens back in the day i was 18 years i was 19 years old and i showed up you know because there's a club so it's a club on base right Mm -hmm. and so i go i'm gonna go there people say hey we're gonna go to the, the club so i go okay well let's go see what's going on there so i walk over to the club and as i'm kind of standing outside i see two guys walk by with with jeans on with cowboy boots with big belt buckles and cowboy hats and like a wrangler shirt mm-hmm. and i was kind of thinking to myself oh that, that's there is there some kind of is it halloween is the, are these guys getting <laughs> dressed up for something and um again this is pre-internet man i mean and 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 then i see a couple more guys go by and it turned out it was country western night but at the club that you at the to? club but no, no. i had never seen a person in you know i come from a, a small town 
in in Connecticut, and there's 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 just no cowboys up there. Yep. I mean, and and interestingly, there's farms and there's people that raise cattle and there's people that grow, you know, have have farms, mm-hmm. but they don't have cowboy boots and they don't wear cowboy hats. And so it's just that's what I that's what I was thinking about when I read this is just how you take all these different people from all over the place. They had no idea. You have no idea what other people are like. And again, this is pre-internet. Mm-hmm. You know, when I joined the Navy, we didn't get to Google. We didn't watch YouTube videos because you, you're exposed to the entire planet and and galaxy through yeah. YouTube. Yeah. First time you saw a real cowboy, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. I thought I thought they were, I thought they were dressed up. Yeah, I thought yeah. they were dressed up. Yeah, it's crazy. It is kind of crazy. And then you know, I ended up. I mean, in in TU Bruiser, we had all kinds of guys from Texas, and there's all kinds of cowboys down in Texas. Uh, like I mean, Chris Chris Kyle was like a legit, whatever rodeo dude. And Leif, Leif's a cowboy. cowboy. Leif's an absolute <laughs> cowboy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of cowboys in there. Yeah. So, all right. Now, we, we're going to advance a little bit. And this is the first time that that Downs is actually in charge. Um, he did a little turnover with the, with the former platoon commander. He takes charge of the platoon. And he's doing security for the bridges, for some bridges that are out kind of away from the main camp. And they're out there to prevent landmines and gather intel and kind of set up a checkpoint. And, and they're there. They're, they're actually staying out there. So they would, they would set up by these bridges. And as they're getting set up for the first time, I'm going to the book. An explosion ripped the air behind me, followed immediately by a scream. My body instinctively threw, my, threw itself against the sandbags as my mind shouted, mortar attack. My eyes registered the scene of men frozen in shocked wonderment, their eyes staring behind me. Man was directly in front of me, and the track men were off in the background, crouching where they where they were when the explosions went off. So they're actually out there with some tracked vehicles. Quickly turning around, my eyes swept an awful catastrophe. One of the claymores had gone off, shattering forever the lives of the three men in front of it. Jesus Christ. Was it a mortar? No, one of our claymores went off. Get those men quick. No, no, wait, there's another claymore out there. What the fuck set it off? What about the other one? So imagine this. You you get to a position and you want to put out claymore mines. And if you don't know what a claymore mine is, it's a it's a directional blasting mine that you set off by command detonation. So you have a little a little thing that you squeeze. And when you squeeze this thing, it sends an electrical charge down the wire into the claymore, detonates a blasting cap. The, the claymore explodes and everything in front of it's going to die. Well, they had set up the claymores and then they were going to put some barbed wire out. And as they were putting the barbed wire out, there was a storm, electrical storm, you know, thunderstorm. And the static electricity in the air actually set off the claymore. So, it killed or it, it did some serious damage. Back to the book. Only a few seconds had passed since the explosion. One of my men and I dashed to the other claymore, frantically fumbling, unscrewing the plug and holding the blasting cap, throwing it away from the claymore. Then I rushed back to the radio. Two men were applying first aid. The other positions were covered by the men assigned to them. They had stayed in place during the action. Good training, I thought, as I fumbled with my map. It was folded in a plastic radio bag. All of us used to carry maps in. Delta 6, this is 1-6, over. 1-6, this is Delta 6, over. 
This is one six. I need dust off. There's been an accident resulting in three peanuts over. We tried to say nothing over the radio that could be understood by the enemy. Thus, we used code words for certain things. A Kool-Aid was a dead soldier and a peanut was a wounded soldier. This is Delta Six. What the hell happened over? This is one six. Static electricity in the air set off a claymore while three track men were putting out barbed wire. Over. This is Delta Six. What's your position? Over. Now, what would he ask me that for? I was on the bridge he'd assigned to me. Let's see. We're here. So I read writing up real easy, just like all the training. So he's looking at his map. He's trying to figure out where he is. Of course, that was my first responsibility where men had been hurt. So maybe that accounted for what happened next in spite of training. Lieutenant, Lieutenant, you've got to get a dust off out here quick. This man's got a bad head wound, said one soldier as they brought the wounded over to me. Dirty black clouds with lightning crashing around added the confusion as the wind howled over from all directions. Huge raindrops started to spatter down. This is 1-6. I'm at coordinates 298028. Over. I read them out. This is Delta 6. Are you sure of that? Over. This is 1-6. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's that's it. All right, there. 1-6, you better check that again. According to what you gave me, you're in the South China Sea. Over. Ooh, did he sound mad. God damn, I've done this a million times. The thought ran through my mind as a sweat broke out. The wounded were groaning, the storm was reaching gigantic proportions, and the track sergeant was demanding to know where that fuck that dust off was. Concentrate, Fred. Concentrate, I said to myself while staring at the meaningless blob of colors, whirls, and numbers. So he's looking at his map, he's just trying to figure it out. Suddenly everything gelled in perfect clarity. Delta 6, this is 1-6, you're right, my coordinates are 288028. I need a dust off fast. Over. One six. This is Delta six. I know where you are. I just wanted to see if you could figure it out. I already called the dust off. So Captain Sells, this that's who he was talking to. Captain Sells, that's uh, that's Delta six, the commander of the company. And even in this pressure situation, he's trying to make sure that the guy is thinking. He's in mm-hmm. the opportunity to think for the first time under pressure, and he already called the dust off. Mm-hmm. But he's still putting the test to him and seeing how he operates under that kind of stress and pressure. Mm. Another uh, following situation, they're, they're kind of sitting in this location and they see a woman start to start to approach where they had some, some equipment and she was looked like she was going to steal some stuff and you know, it's kind of no big deal. Okay. She's going to steal some, whatever, some ponchos or something. Well, then they see her, what she picks up as a case of grenades and they're thinking, Wait a second. Now this just got really bad. Because if she was stealing a poncho, okay, no big deal. But if she's stealing grenades, that's stuff that's going to be used to come back and kill them. But again, because we have a guy with a with a conscience, you know, a guy that sees where the line of darkness is and he doesn't want to cross it. So instead of just shooting her, which he could have done, he loads a, a magazine of tracer rounds into his into his weapon and he starts shooting them around her kind of warning shots and then eventually starts shooting he's a good shot he starts shooting at the little rope that holds the case that she's holding on to he starts mm-hmm. shooting at that rope shoots at it like five or six times finally hits the rope kind of hits her hand she drops it she runs off again just trying to show the discretion that this guy's using as a real contrast to to the Milai episode mm-hmm. Now, speaking of that, they've a little later on, they roll up some prisoners. One is an old man and one is a young man. 
and this old gray-haired sergeant starts going after him. So they got these two prisoners. They're captured. And here's the sergeant. So you're the fuckers that zapped my buddies in the tank, the old gray-haired sergeant snarled. Without warning, he swung a heavy fist into the face of the old man, knocking him down. The other fist swung into the face of the younger man, knocking him down beside the old man. The sergeant was screaming and bellowing as he pummeled the two men on the sand. They rolled into balls for protection, but were hampered by their tied hands. I ran from the road, yelling my two men to pull the sergeant off the prisoners. They grabbed him by his soldiers as he fought them to get back to the Vietnamese. He lashed out with his foot at the prisoners, catching one of them in the side. What the hell are you doing, sergeant? Those men are my prisoners, I exclaimed. His face was red with fury as he yelled back at me. You had no right to take those stinking Kong prisoners. He smelled of beer that he had drunk. You should have killed those motherfuckers like they killed that other tank crew. Fuck! These men are tied up. We don't know who they are, I yelled back. I was saved by the sound of Lieutenant Nut- Knutson's voice breaking over the argument. Calm down, Sergeant. Go back to your tent. So that was, the other lieutenant was the commander of the tanks. Again, I'm pointing this out. He's new in country. He sees somebody beating up a prisoner. They had just lost a, one of the tanks to a mine earlier. And obviously the gray-haired sergeant's pissed and he wants to take it out on these guys. But, you know, calmer, cooler heads prevailed in that situation. Now, speaking of mines, mines, back to the book, mines continue to be laid in the road at irregular intervals. It was a fact of life, but the terror of an explosion never failed to send a shiver through our guts no matter how many times we heard them. Whatever we were doing, our heads would jerk around. It was terrifying to hear the explosion, see the ugly gray and black cloud as it ripped into the air, see dark pieces of metal, canvas, machinery, and human beings flying in the blossom of death out from the center of destruction. And this one big mine happens, and he's going to check it out. It hits a truck, it hits a vehicle. I approach the twisted wreck. It was very disheartening to see the smoking wreck, which had once been the carrier of human beings. There were wisps of smoke drifting upward from the hulk. As we approached closer, we saw parts of the driver's body mangled beyond recognition in the cab and on the ground. The main portion of the driver was only recognizable because we knew that was what it was supposed to be. My men ran toward the still-living being huddled in the rice paddy, mewling over and over that his leg was gone. The scene of desolation brought about the true impact of the Vietnam War to me. There was no enemy to fire at. There was no nothing to retaliate against. At a distance, the traffic of vehicles and Vietnamese watched. All that remained was the messy job of cleaning up while thinking that this could happen to us. A small part of our mind tried to retain its sanity by reminding itself over and over that it would never happen to us. It can happen to everyone else, but it would not happen to me. With that in mind, we started scraping up what was left, preparing it for the plastic body bag. Now, eventually they, they go from guarding the bridges to where they start doing patrols out in the jungle and ambushes out in the jungle and direct action missions out in the jungle and at this point they're out in the jungle and 
I'll go to the book. My platoon and I had not shaved for three or four days. Delta Six was a bear about shaving. Combat patrol or not. Just because we lived like animals didn't mean we had to look like them, was his way of thinking. Throwing my fatigue jacket across a bush, I grabbed my shaving gear and told Spag and Visenor to accompany me. We would guard each other as we shaved. So the the company commander's coming out, and they're unshaven, and they're like, okay, we got to shave real quick. But, again, you can see that Captain Sells has a real influence, and you can see that that discipline, it carries over. And when you let it slack, and but then you go visit your troops, and they have to get back in line, it brings them back to humanity. It makes them, reminds them that they, because think about it. That shaving is something you do in the military every single day. So when all of a sudden you're out in the field, you start losing that. You start slipping away from that. And things start, other things start slipping away as well. Mm. They get into a, uh, they get into some firefights out there. And at one point he gets wounded and I'm going to the book. After Holmes had finished bandaging my arm, I put on my fatigue jacket and lit a cigarette. I felt good. I had only been in country a few months and I had my second purple heart. The first one had been from a wound received in October. To top it off, I had been wounded twice in one day, shot in the ear in the morning and hit with a grenade shrapnel in the afternoon. Luck was with me. All three wounds had been slight. Now you can say luck when you get shot in the ear and you are lucky for sure, but that's that's a real... That's a real eye-opener indicating that you realize how close you were to dying. And I had guys get shot in the helmet, mm. and, and they didn't like it one bit because <laughs> that's real close. Someone got real close to, to getting you. Now, going forward more, there's a, there's a battle going on, and the company's out in the field, and... They're not directly involved in the battle, so they get told, okay, you, we want you to go set up where, the, where we think the, the VC is going to run to, where we think they're going to run. You guys set up a blocking force, so that way when the VC runs into you, you ambush them and take them out. So they're kind of maneuvering to go set that up. His platoon is maneuvering to set that up, and we'll go to the book. After 15 minutes or so, we were approximately halfway down the ridge. The captain gave me a call. Dragon 6 had decided it would be better if I halved my platoon, marching the two elements in opposite directions in order to cover a larger area. I was dead set against this. My platoon was below strength and dividing it would be asking two reinforced rifle squads to defend hundreds of acres of jungle against a foe of unknown size. So Dragon 6 is above the company commander. This is now the battalion commander. And so now you're getting an order from the battalion commander. So it's you know, you're a young lieutenant platoon commander and you're getting told to do this and he doesn't feel good about it. Back to the book. But orders were orders, especially from Dragon 6. I passed back the ward for Sheldon to come up. I was pouring over my map and compass when Sheldon Brand reached me. The battle was full the full blown. It sound its sound provided background noise as I briefed Shelley on the situation and our orders. Shit, I don't like it, sir. I know I don't either. But it's a lick. You got your map and compass? Good. So there's all kinds of reasons why they don't like this idea. Uh, obviously, one that he already stated was that, you know, you take your platoon and you cut them in half. That's, that's just 
you don't have the same fighting capability at all. Mm-hmm. I think they had one one heavy machine gun in each squad. So now you got basically they're down to two squads because they were under strength. So we're talking one heavy machine gun. And by the way, if somebody gets wounded, you know, you got your wounded guy. And if you're going to carry that guy, it takes two or three guys to carry the guy. So that's four guys gone. So you could very easily be outnumbered, outmanned, and outgunned by the enemy. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't like this idea. On top of that, I will tell you, he doesn't talk about it here. When you split up in a situation like this, it becomes very difficult to do command and control. And now you've got two elements that are weaker size, and you're, you're no longer able to support each other. That's the, that's the premise of cover and move. Mm-hmm. Cover and move means you want to be close enough that you can support each other. You don't want to split far apart where you can't help each other if something happens. Well, that's what they're getting told to do. They don't like it. And, but they do it. And maybe he should have protested more, but he's getting he's getting orders from the battalion commander, and he says, okay, let's do it. And, of course, within a couple minutes of doing it, they lose radio contact. So now they can't, they can't hear each other, and they're starting to march apart. Finally, they get radio. Uh, they get connected on the radio again. They get comms again. And it sounds like this. 1-5, this is 1-6. Have you figured out where you are yet? This is 1-5, negative. So Shelly, with his squad, is lost. Doesn't know where he is. Okay. Now, the lieutenant's all set up, though. They're, they're in their position where they're thinking the enemy might come by. They're set up to attack them. And here we go back to the book. Lieutenant Porter whispered as he reached my side, We're, we hear noises to our front. Men are moving across in front of us in the jungle. Hold on a second, Porter. 1-5, this is 1-6. The sound of the battle should be on your right if you're going in the right direction. Where are the sounds? Over. This is 1-5, negative on the right. The sounds are on the left. Over. 1-5, did you just say the sounds are on your left? I was squeezing the handset so hard my knuckles were white. Affirmative, affirmative. Jesus Christ, 1-5, I hoarsely whispered intensely into the mouthpiece. You're heading in our direction. I could hear the sounds of men moving through the jungle below us. I whispered to Porter, get back down there and tell the men to hold their fire. That may not be dinks after all. Hurry. Porter had heard the conversation with Shelley and quickly turned to our to carry out my order. He couldn't yell because the sounds were coming from the dink soldiers. His yell would put us in jeopardy. As Porter started toward the crew, the machine gun crew opened fire. The harshness of the gun's multiple explosions ripped across my thoughts as its sound echoed through the handset I was holding next to my ear. The sound of Americans swearing and screaming rebounded from the jungle below and from my handset. Cease fire, I screamed, cease fire, so he can actually hear his guys getting shot by his own guys. We have a blue on blue. Porter and I were running to the gun crew, both of us yelling, cease fire, cease fire, the sound of their gun blanketing the screams in front of them. Abruptly, the gun quit firing. I yelled into the jungle, Shelly, is that you? Yes, yes, stop firing, don't fire. I was answered by many voices. I stood there an instant. The horrible realization that I had fired on my own men swept over me like a wave from an ice-cold hell. The gun crew looked at me, their faces filled with shock. I ran, leaping and falling down to the brush line where my men were, asking the question, anybody hit for Christ's sake? Gallagher yelled back as I burst into a small clearing. One man, the point man. So there you go, blue on blue. Another reason 
why if you don't have to separate your forces, you don't. You don't separate your forces unless you have to, and when you do it, you do it with extreme caution. And we, we we've we, I, I think every book we we talk about blue on blue. It happens in all these books. It happens in my book. And some of these descriptions right here, I recognize those a hundred percent. When he says the horrible realization I'd fired on my own men swept over me like a wave from an ice cold hell. Yeah, I totally recognize that. And the fact that he says the gun crew looked at me, their faces filled with shock when I. When I explained to my guys in the field like that was a blue on blue, their faces were just complete shock. If you're in the military, if you're in law enforcement, be very careful when you split your forces. It's if it just multiplies the challenges. Sometimes it is necessary, but you gotta keep control over it. And now we go to where he's calling for a medevac for his for his wounded guy. Delta 6, this is 1 6 over. This is Delta 6 over. This is 1 6. I need a dust off for a peanut. We've run into a little action. Over. This is Delta 6. What do you mean a little action? What's going on? What happened? Over. My knees felt weak and my stomach was sour. This is 1 6. We had a little difficulty with, with the terrain and uh, I ambushed 1 5. Over. What? How the fuck did you do that, 1 6? You mean you ambushed your own men? What kind of outfit are you running up there? That's the most asinine thing I've ever heard of. You get your head out of your ass, 1-6, and get that platoon straightened up. You got that. Over. This is 1-6. Affirmative. Over. Ah, 1-6. Give me your coordinates. The dust off's on its way. How bad is your peanuts? Over. This is 1-6. Not too bad. He'll lose a couple of toes, but everybody else is okay. Over. All right, 1-6. Settle down. Out. He was more gentle with the last transmission because I'm sure he heard my voice and showed the strain I was feeling. Whatever the reason, I welcomed the sound of his voice. Perhaps he understood better than I thought what had happened. So he comes at him real hard. He realizes that the guy feels horrible. And, and, and then he kind of backs off and says, settle down. He also knows he's got to stay in the game. He's got to get him to stay in the game. And there's a nightmare of a video on YouTube of, and there's actually, it's, it's from a documentary, but there was a really bad blue on blue in the first Gulf War where a uh, Apache gunship lit up, lit up uh, I think it was a Bradley, uh, some kind of APC. I saw that. It's a nightmare. Yeah. But you can hear the one guy that fired, they're saying, hey, you got to get back in position, you know, hold the line, basically. And he's like, uh, I just killed my own guys. I want to come back. And they're, they're saying negative. And so that's basically what this, what Captain Sells is doing here, saying, hey, listen, okay, I'm pissed, but guess what? Calm down, settle down, get your shit together. And he says, out. And, and, and by the way, for those folks that aren't military, over, when you say over at the end of a transmission on the radio, it means you expect a reply. When you say out, there's no reply expected. So, like, when we end this podcast, I say out because it's over. There, you don't, don't say anything back to me. It's over. I don't say over. And, and sometimes you'll hear people say over and out in the military. That doesn't, you don't say that. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so when you hear that in a movie, know that they, know that they are cheesy. Is that kind of like when, you, when they hang up the phone on the movie, it goes, and you hear the dial tone? When yes. That doesn't really happen. That doesn't really happen either. Yeah, yeah, same thing. I trudged back, back to the book. I trudged back to my position, one five and his men following. Man handed me a, a, a can of coffee. I chain-smoked my cigarettes and drank coffee while the platoon expanded into a larger perimeter. I stood facing the mountain, the battle still raging on. 
one five walked over to me, still shaken from his experience. He told me how he was sorry that he had gotten to me in such a dutch with the captain, and we discussed the operation going over his mistake while we attempted to figure out ways to keep it from happening again if we were ever split up. Shelley and I had been through too much together for me to blame him for what had happened. I told him so, and we let it go at that. We had been lucky. Besides, I blamed myself for what had happened. The responsibility for any unit's actions ultimately rests with its commander. The leader got the glory when things worked out, and he took the blame when they didn't. That went with the job. When it came right down to it, the men were my responsibility, and I had failed them today. little bit of extreme ownership. If you read the book Extreme Ownership that Leif and I wrote, the opening chapter, that's what it's about. Blue on blue and doing exactly what, what Lieutenant Downs did right there, taking ownership of what the mistakes were made in the battlefield. Back to the book. There's a couple guys, well, actually not yet. They're, they, they link up with another, with another platoon, and now they're having a conversation. Uh, Downs is having a conversation with another officer named Anderson. A dink was lying next to us as we talked. He had a black ace of spades stuck onto his fist. Hey, Anderson, what's that all about? That's so the dinks know what outfit fucked them up over here. Look around. Most of the dinks got those in their hands. Sure enough, the dinks were all holding an ace of spades. That's a good idea, but where'd you get all the aces? One of the guy's moms works in a card store, so he wrote home asking her to send her a couple packs of nothing but an ace of spades. Why did we want to kill dinks? After all, we had mostly been law-abiding citizens back in the world, and we were taught that to take another man's life was wrong. Somehow the perspective got twisted in a war. The government told us it was all right, and in fact, a must to kill members of another government's people. Then we had the law on our side. It turned out that most of us liked to kill other men. Some of the guys would shoot at a dink as much as they would at a target. Some of the men didn't like to kill a dink up close. The closer the killing, the more personal it became. Others in the platoon liked to kill in close. A few even liked to torture the dinks if they had a prisoner or cut the dead bodies with knives in a frenzy of aggression. A few didn't like to kill at all and wouldn't fire their weapons except to protect their buddies. Mostly, we all saw it as a job and rationalized it in our own way. Over it all ran the streak of anger or fear that for brief moments ruled us all. My job as platoon leader was to control the spectrum of emotions, to guide the men toward survival. I didn't believe in torturing or in allowing a dink to die a lingering death. In the jungle, we never took prisoners if we could help it. Every day we spent in the jungle eroded a little more of our humanity away. Prisoners could escape to become our enemy again, hence no prisoners. The philosophical arguments in favor of man's ability to resist the slide into barbarism sound noble and rational in a classroom or at a cocktail party. But when the enemy is bearing down on you, bent on taking your life away from you, it's not his country against your country. Not his army against your army. Not his philosophy against your philosophy. It's the fact that that son of a bitch is trying to kill you, and you'd better kill him first. That's a reality right there. Now, 
going back to tactics a little bit, back to the book, there was a spot about midway down the mountain marked in blue. That meant something bigger than a stream. If I were an enemy commander, that would be a perfect spot for a camp. High mountains on three sides, a good water supply, thick jungle growth, and an escape path in any directions. If he decided on that location, the enemy commander would be counting on attack from the valley up towards his location. He would have his back guarded, but not very heavily, or so I reasoned. I just like that because you can see he's getting his mind in the mind of the enemy. He's mm-hmm. thinking about what would well, he's looking at the map. He sees stream. He sees valley. He sees good, good uh, covered positions from three sides. He's thinking, okay, this is what the enemy must be thinking right here. Now, the the fighting continues, and and as always, you know, I'm burning through book. I mean, this is a this is a 250 page book, and I'm reading you know, what, maybe 20 pages from it. So there's so much action going on and and so many good lessons to learn. Obviously, I can't cover them all. That's why you can buy this book yourself, as you should. But here we go. I'm going to a point here where they've been in a firefight. They got three wounded. One of the guys lost an arm. One of them's unconscious. And they're getting, a, they have a helicopter to come in, and the helicopter's lowered down a cable, and they're lifting the guys out to get them to a medevac situation. Back to the book. The signal was given, and the cable pulled him off the ground. About halfway up, he waved to all of us, grinning like a Cheshire cat. Blood dripped on us. It was a picture I shall always hold in my mind. A man dangling from a cable, holding a stick fastened to a tourniquet on the stump of his leg, waving at his comrades with the other hand. A cigarette dangling from his lips. One six. This is getting hairy up here. We're starting to take fire, the pilot reported. Hold on, just one more. Spag and I lifted the unconscious man up while we slid the vest onto him. Someone handed me the cable, which I hooked onto the ring. The unconscious man was winched upward, dangling like a limp doll at the end of a cable. Spag and I stood underneath, watching this final exodus. As the crewman reached out to grab the man, something went wrong. The man had become unhooked and somehow fell through 50 feet of sky towards us. We jumped back as the man fell in a heap at our feet. The medic and I pulled the man over. Fuck. He stopped breathing. He goes on to say, The attrition rate on our side was terrible on our morale. Although we killed and wounded many of the NVA, we never knew how much it hurt them. It seemed there was an unlimited number to take their places. But on our side, when we lost a man, we all knew, and it wore heavily on our minds. The constant marching and fighting demanded two things of us, strength and absolute reliability. Now they're moving out on another operation, and there's one of the one of the soldiers named Yoder. Yoder was the point man. He was experienced and full of good humor due to his promotion to door gunner. A good man to have on point any day, he was aggressive and unafraid. Even though he was going in soon, there was no question of putting someone else in his place on point. It was his turn, and he would not have it any other way. So he's getting promoted to door gunner, so he's going to get pulled out of the field. He's going to fly around in a helicopter, um, you know, relatively safe compared to being in the field. He reminded me of a hillbilly with his coarse language, mannerisms, and humor. I was always asking him when he was going to get that front tooth replaced. 
That missing tooth made him look more like a hillbilly than anything else. He always laughed and said, fuck, sir, I ain't about to let them fucking army dentists work on me. Shit, no, that would be a lick on me. So they continue their patrol, and they're coming up on this kind of flat area, and Yoder crept forward in a crouch, looked back at me and grinned. I grinned back and nodded my head. Yoder stepped over a tree root, holding up part of the small gully bank. At that moment, all hell broke loose as a Chicom machine gun strafed the point element. Yoder was hit in the body and fell forward into the gully. The machine gun acted as a key which triggered a complete ambush. We walked into a classical U-shaped ambush with the machine gun being at the base of the U. So this is, we, we used to call this a fire sack when you get ambushed and you're completely surrounded by the enemy. And that's where, they're, that's where they are. Starts with this machine gun hitting Yoder and then just breaks out. Explosions, machine guns, and rifle bullets ripped through the air and ricocheted off the ground and trees around us. The noise was overwhelming. Men were screaming and yelling, trying desperately to get cover, or screaming when they were hit or thought they were hit, which was almost as terrifying. We still had not seen any of the enemy in the thick growth around us. Most of us in the point played dead. I lay trying to get my thinking organized as to what to do. So you're just taking massive ambush and you're laying there thinking, what am I going to do? I could hear Yoder crying on the other side of the route where he had fallen. He cried out for me to come and get him. Lieutenant, I've been hit. I've been hit bad. I'm dying. Please come and get me. Please come and get me. I turned my head in his direction. Twigs and bark from trees were falling like snow all around us as the terrible shrapnel and firepower ripped through the jungle around us. I was terrified. So there... They're pinned down, and he actually ends up going to try and help one of the other guys first, a guy named Bell. And he gets to Bell under covering fire, and he says, Bell was able, was able to help me but couldn't see anything. He limped and crawled. I pushed and swore as we continuously fell in our flight back up the hill. As I pulled him up the hill, one of my feet was shot up from, from underneath me. I'd been shot in the heel of one of the bullets knocking off a piece of my boot heel. And then, and the force had knocked me down. I got up again and felt a tremendous blow to my hip knocking me down. Hit again, I thought. Finally, I got Bell behind a rock. Doc was there and started working on him. I lay on my back looking up at the sky through the jungle canopy, not believing I had actually made it down there and back. Yoder was still down there, and although I had witnessed the bullets hitting him, I didn't want to leave. I had to be absolutely sure he was dead. I would never forgive myself if I pulled back and he was still alive. I was ready to call artillery in on our position if we were overrun. And that's like the ultimate the ultimate game over move. We're going to be overrun by the enemy. Okay, here we go. I'm going to call, call all ordnance on my position. Drop. But luckily, the fire subsides. The, one of the other platoons had come to their help. And now that other platoon shows up and the enemy's pretty much gone and it stopped shooting. We all stood up. A couple of my men and I ran down to where Three Sixes Point was standing over Yoder. I leaped over the edge of the gully and stopped at Yoder's body. Kneeling down, I turned his body over. He had died with his head lying downhill. His face was a dark blue from the blood which gravity had pulled into the downhill portion of his body. 
There wasn't much blood on his body, but numerous bullet holes were cut into his fatigues, covering his stomach and chest. His eyes were closed. I looked at him for a moment, my thoughts running back to our many conversations in the past. Once we had discussed whether we would go to the aid of one of our fellow soldiers if he was in trouble. I had told him I would always respond to one of my men if they needed help. He had replied it would be a lick on me. I wondered if he had known that I tried to get to him. He was the first man under my command to die. I looked up to see some of my platoon and three sixes platoon standing over a dink body in the gully. Three six had an Indian in his platoon, and I had an Indian in my platoon. They drew their knives and slashed the enemy's body in frustration. This was the only dead dink the men could find, one lousy dink for all that pain and suffering. At least we could take our hate out on that son of a bitch. They had also taken one prisoner as well, the, the other platoon head. And so now he starts thinking. Back to the book. This is it, I thought. I'd been wounded four times in battle. I had done my job. Captain Sells had asked after my third wound if I wanted to be sent back. Anyone with three wounds was do that. All it took was two wounds to get you out of the field. Surely four would let me live with myself. What was I trying to prove? But I answered my own question. The men depend on me. It's my job to keep them alive by giving them good leadership and looking after them. They need me. Yeah, but shit. What did I owe myself? I had a wife and two little girls who needed me. The $10,000 in insurance money wouldn't do them much good. Where did my duty lie? I was still shaking. I couldn't go through this again. Reluctantly, almost against my will, I started walking toward the captain. Captain? Yes, Fred. You asked once if I wanted to go out of the field, if I'd been wounded a third time? He turned and looked into my face. Yes. Well, I think, I mean, would you think I was letting you and my men down if I did? I stammered. No, I wouldn't. You've done your job. I could get you a job, get you a good job with S2. That's intelligence back in the rear. I, I think I want out. I don't know if I can do this again. Maybe I can't cut it. That's nonsense. You're a hell of a fine officer, and the men will understand, but you think about it. Okay, I will. Let me think. A little bit of confidence returned at his words. I handed Yoder's things to him. I wandered back to the packs, thinking I should find Yoder's pack. Bell had stood up and was coming toward me when he saw the blindfolded dink. In one motion, he swung his fist into the dink's face. He hit him again and again, knocking the surprised dink down in a burst of fury. Bell started kicking him. It was obvious Bell was going to kill him. The other men and I stood smoking and watching. We were going to let Bell kill the dink. Bell had the right. Captain Sells yelled and ran over to us, pushing me out of the way and pulling Bell off the dink. Here! What's this? What's going on? We are not going to have this in my company. This man's a prisoner. Lieutenant Downs, what are you doing just standing there? I looked at him in surprise. Bell was killing this motherfucker. What's wrong with that, I retorted. You know goddamn well what's the matter with that, Lieutenant. This man is defenseless and our prisoner. Now let's get this prisoner back to the LD, LZ. I wanted the dink dead, but the captain was right. 
so you you can see there obviously captain sells has a has a great head on his shoulders and there's something else at play the other thing that's at play is that by function of the way the battle went down and by function of being one rank above the platoon commanders that are in the firefights guess what he is de facto he's detached he's detached he didn't i mean bells the guy was pinned down almost got killed right he's the guy that's emotional and guess who pulled him out risked his life lost yoder that was downs so these guys are emotional they're they're they want to kill this guy they captured him he's vc let's kill him and captain sells is detached because he wasn't in that firefight he wasn't directly there so he's able to maintain enough mental detachment to to make a, a hard decision but also hold the line mm-hmm. and this is something that you know when we go through the me Lai massacre this could have happened over and over again this could have happened any anywhere along the way someone could have said hey what are you doing right there stop we don't do that and that's exactly what cells does and i think another thing that's that's important from a leadership perspective also uh, well before i go to that point you notice that when he's having the personal conversation with Lieutenant Downs, he calls him Fred. Mm. But when he's screwing up and he needs to kind of put him in his place, he's Lieutenant Downs. Mm. On top of that, from the leadership perspective, from Captain Sell's perspective, he's got to always remember that w- what is happening, that they are emotional, that they did just lose their buddy. They, he's got, he can't just, you know, be so on the straight and narrow that goes, oh, I'm going to court-martial you. He could court, he could court-martial Bell, right? Hey, you abused a prisoner. You're, you know, I'm going to court-martial you. And he doesn't do that because he understands their perspective. And that's why, you know, again, throughout this book, Sells really impresses me as a, as a very squared-away, good, solid leader, mm-hmm. as does Downs. I mean, Downs, obviously right here, he's emotional, and he's lost it. Uh, he's, he's crossed the line, right? But... All it takes is cells just telling him, get back over here, buddy. Yeah. You cross the line, come back, and he says, the captain was right. Yeah. So that's all it took, just mm-hmm. a little snap, just to get him to detach a little bit from the emotions and and move move away from the darkness. Back to the book. I walked over to the bodies. Yoder's eyes were partially shut, and I leaned down to push them close. Not that it did any good, but for some reason, I thought it was better that way. I stood there with one hand on my aching hip, smoking and thinking. Yoder's face was all muddy from the numerous times he'd been dropped in the mud, and there was a trickle of blood at the base of his throat. This is the way it will always end, I thought. Men being killed in the jungle, other men dragging their bodies out, putting them on choppers, and the rest of us going back to the fighting. When they left on the chopper, it was as if they had never been. Man's beginning and man's end would always be attended by only a few. Those that bore him at birth and those that bore him at death. The only important thing was what he did in between. Good or bad or indifferent, he would touch those around him in some way and then be gone. I wondered if a salute would be in order, not necessarily in the military sense, but a salute from one who had known him and who would never forget him. I decided it was, and I raised my hand to my forehead in a farewell. 
Now the bird's coming in to pick him up as after he gives that final salute to Yoder. Smoke was popped, and the large chopper swung in towards us for his landing. The doors were pushed back, and I saw the door gunner on the side facing me, looking around, anxiously searching for the ominous, for the omnipresent enemy. Good man, I thought, not trusting a goddamn thing, even with an American infantry company surrounding the LZ. And I, lo- I lo- just love that. He's noticing that this door gunner's coming in, the helo's coming in to pick him up, and instead of this guy cutting corners and be like, oh, there's an infantry trumpet again, there's no rounds being fired, I'm just going to relax. No, this guy's in the game, opens the door, doesn't, <laughs> what does he say? He says, uh, not trusting a goddamn thing, even with an American infantry company on the LZ. Many thoughts were crisscrossing my mind. Above everything else ran the thought that I could not abandon my men. I felt this shame that I had asked Captain Sells to pull me out of the field earlier when I was still shaken. What would the men think if they found out I was doing such a thing? Worse, what would I think of myself? Now they continue to do operations and eventually they get they they get pulled out of the field uh, on this for the final time on a helicopter back to the book the machine carried us away i looked over my men sprawled along the sides of the chopper they had removed the magazines from their weapons before boarding and now were holding them close to their bodies the men were dirty and unshaven, their clothes in various stages of disrepair, jungle boots worn and torn with clods of mud between the cleats. There were dark rings under their eyes, and their faces were drawn and tired. Some of those faces were new men sent out to places, the faces that started the operation and were erased. We had experienced the worst of life and the most challenging. We had survived. The platoon I took back was not the platoon I had brought out. Now, they're on yet another operation. After they go back, they get reset, and they're out on another operation doing a patrol, and I'm going back to the book. About five meters past the gate, the two men turned to me and waved me forward. All clear, sir. Let's go, Rudo. I passed through the gate. My right hand grasped my M16. My left held my cigarette. I was humming the blue tail fly as I mentally ticked off the positions around the saddle where I would set my men. I noticed the time. 0745 hours. My foot slipped backwards a fraction of an inch, hitting the trigger mechanism of a mine. I never heard the explosion. Black powder and dirt flew by me. My eardrums ripped. My body was flying through the air. I threw my arms in front of me in a reflex motion to balance myself. My eyes registered the horror of a brilliantly white, jagged bone sticking out of the stump of arm above where my left elbow had been. Ragged, bloody flesh surrounded the splintered bone. My mind cursed as utter helplessness and disrepair and despair overwhelmed me. Another part of my body coolly calculated what had caused the explosion. It had been a landmine. But what kind would blow off my arm instead of my legs? Of course, it had to be a bouncing Betty, a mine that flies up to out of the ground after being tripped and explodes waist high. That would do it. My M16 had been in my right hand. The rifle was shattered. My hand was mangled. I stared in horror at what remained of my right arm. 
The flesh had been ripped away, exposing two bones in my white forearm from wrist to the elbow. The bones looked like two white, glistening, narrow rods buried in raw, bloody meat. Thinking, my God, my God, my God, I felt told defeat of my life as I landed on my feet five yards from where the mine had exploded. After landing, I staggered forward two or three steps and then collapsed. My legs wouldn't work. The mine had gone off about six inches from my left hip. From the waist down, my body was mutilated and torn, where large chunks of flesh, muscles, blood vessels, and nerves had been ripped away by the hot, exploding shrapnel. My buttocks were blown away. The back of my legs were ripped to the bone down to my heels. I rolled over on my back, being careful to keep my stump and right arm out of the dirt and sand. My body was sending so many pain signals to my brain that it overloaded like an electrical circuit. It caused me to feel a racing, humming numbness. I lifted my head to view a scene from hell. I watched a couple of men run by me to the wounded point man. They would only glance at at me sideways as I lay there holding my bloody stump in the air. They seemed nervous. Some of my men ran toward me, then turned suddenly away at the sight of my torn body. They stood near me but hesitated to come too close, as if their movement through the air would make it worse. Spag asked me to turn sideways a little bit so he could pull my gear off. There were tears in his eyes as he worked over me. With a grunt, he pulled the belt out from under me. Is there anything I can do for you, Spag asked. Yes, run over there and pick up my arm and bring it back to me. I don't want to leave it in this stinking village. I told Marley to get my squad leaders. Go take care of the other men, Doc. They need you. I looked up. Marley and my squad leaders were standing in a rough line along my right side. I asked who was hurt. I was feeling weaker and weaker. It was so goddamn cold. As my body fought for life, my thoughts ran to my men and my platoon. I felt I was cheating them by leaving them when they needed me most. When I had joined the platoon as their leader, they had taught me the ways to survive in combat. A second lieutenant who was new in country, and they were old-timers, 18, 19, 20, but old to the ways of combat and death. As I gained experience and confidence as a leader, I became an old-timer, having to make decisions that put me in the position I was in now, wounded and maimed, facing death. My men were still up there, looking at me, despair on their faces. Their invulnerable leader had been brought down. Marley? Yes, sir. I want you to, your men to get the dink who planted that mine. I want him dead. Get him. We will, 1-6. Don't you worry about that. They looked at each other, then back at me. The gray haze of the day was strong. I pushed it back to look beyond my men. It was colder now and harder to see. I was thinking of my grandma Downs and her farm of the woods and fields of Indiana I love so much. If only I could walk them one more time. I'm only 23 years old and I'm dying. What a waste. There are so many things I had meant to do and say, but I hadn't. Now I will never get the chance. So... Obviously, although he thought he was going to die, he lived. He lost his arm. He uh, ended up with a with severe wounds. Got discharged from the army, and you know that's one of the things in the story. He had actually gotten picked up for a for a 
pilot program. So he's going to be a, a pilot in the army. He was going to stay in the army, become a pilot. And obviously that was gone because he didn't have an arm anymore. Uh, luckily they were able to save his other arm, but you know, severe wounds, real long rehab. And eventually he ends up going back to college. And here we go back to the book. In the fall of 1968, as I stopped at a traffic light on my walk to class across the campus of the University of Denver, a man stepped up to me and said, Hi. Without waiting for my reply to his greeting, he pointed to the hook sticking out of my left sleeve. Get that in Vietnam? I said, Yeah, up near Tam Kai in one corps. Serves you right. As the man walked away, I stood rooted, too confused with hurt, shame, and anger to react. Ten years have passed. The hurt, shame, and anger still flood over me with the memory. But one thing I am certain. None of the men I knew who served in Vietnam deserved to die or to be maimed, either physically or mentally. I think it is necessary now to give Vietnam, to give another view of Vietnam. That of the day-to-day life of an infantryman on the ground. I have always been asked what I thought about Vietnam, but never what it was like to fight in Vietnam. This is the way it was for us. The platoon of Delta 1-6. And in the afterward, he talks about why he wrote this book. In writing The Killing Zone, I had two goals. I wanted future young infantry lieutenants and non-commissioned officers to learn from my experiences, both good and bad. Some actions I took as a combat officer had worked out well, and some had not. The time had come to deal with both. Perhaps some would learn from my mistakes, especially the lessons that combat, especially the lesson that combat does not go by the book. I also wanted to show future generations that the American soldier in Vietnam was a good soldier. In 1978, the anti-war, anti-military feeling in the United States was pervasive in the newspapers, on television, among writers, in movies, and in colleges. I had started college in at the University of Denver in the fall of 1968 while I was still on active duty in the military. The Students for a Democratic Society, the Weathermen, and other anti-war groups on campus targeted anyone in the military as fair game for their anti-war stance. Such hostility was not pleasant for me or other Vietnam veterans. It was hard to be denigrated for serving your country. Many veterans have never admitted Many veterans never admitted they were in the service for many years after Vietnam. Angry at the anti-war faction, I wanted to set the record straight by proving that the men I served with had fought and died with honor. And here are the men that died and made the ultimate sacrifice for freedom and for their brothers in arms from Delta Company, 1st Battalion of the 14th Infantry, 3rd Brigade, 4th Infantry Division.
PFC, Donald Lawrence Glover, PFC Norman Charles Kissinger, PFC Robert Wayne Seaton, Spec 4 Gregory Thomas, Thomas Eiding, Spec 4 Charles Irwin Edwin Doc Hoffman, PFC James Garrett Miller, Spec 4 James Strong Yoder, PFC William Henry Harf, Spec 4 Stephen Richard Anderson, Spec 4 Lewis Charles Nelson, Second Lieutenant William Dwight Ordway, PFC Paul James Miller, Spec 4 Jose Cortez, PFC Charles Peter Torliot, and Second Lieutenant John C. Martin. So, Fred Downs, second lieutenant, asked us to do two things in this book. First, learn from his experiences, the mistakes, the lessons, and that is what we do here. We read and we study and we think and we learn. And the second thing he asks is that we remember the men who fought and died with honor. And that's something that we need to do and we should continue to do each and every day. Remember. And that is one thing about this podcast that is a has a lot of meaning to me is the fact that people are listening to it and the memory of these types of men and the challenges that they faced it will be remembered they will be remembered Always. So, once again, the book is called The Killing Zone, My Life in the Vietnam War by Frederick Downs. It's, it's a fantastic read. It's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic dedication and, and it's a, it, does an incredible job of honoring honoring these men that fought so hard in a in a very unpopular war and buy the book and read it you will you will absolutely get a lot out of it echo charles i believe uh we can move on to the next sector of this podcast and Again, um, if nothing else is delivered through this podcast, you know, let's let it be these couple things. 
these couple ideas of learning lessons from other people's experiences and remembering other people's sacrifices. That's definitely one of the driving forces behind my will to do this podcast. And we're going to keep doing the podcast. Echo, get me out of here, please. Get me out of this situation. I'm in that, I'm in that zone right now. Um, I need to send up a red star cluster. You know what that is? So, so in the military, when you need help, mm. it's a red star cluster. It's a, it's a flare. You pop up and it's right, big red. It means you couldn't communicate with anybody and you need some help. Gotcha. So there's my red star cluster. <laughs> you need to jump in and say, hey, Jocko, speaking of the podcast, <laughs> here's how we yep. can support it. Yep. So talk uh, about that while I go, get over here and get myself under control before I start smashing things. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you want to send in reinforcements to support Jocko and, and our podcast here. While supporting yourself with supplementation, by the way. Good idea. Go to onit.com slash Jocko. So on it has like these supplements that mm. we take. Supplements Indeed. for your joints, krill oil, boom. Shroom tech for uh performance, hard stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh CrossFit, jujitsu. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to go hard, you know Hardcore. In the paint. Um yeah, shroom tech, boom. Um also if you do your shopping at Amazon, which I think we all do, um, go ahead and click through our website. We have a little link there, um, you know, and you can support it that way. That's a super easy way. All you got to do is remember to do it before you shop. That is helpful. Yeah, very much so. We also have a new tool. Because can you, can you make the remembering part a little bit easier? <laughs> yes. So when, you know, you figure, hey. I gotta remember to go to the website before I shop on Amazon. Sometimes I'm in a hurry, whatever. Mm. You know, maybe I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm not thinking about Jocko's podcast every single day, all day. I gotta buy some, you know, some cleaner, some duct tape, whatever. <laughs> Here's a way so you it helps you remember and or makes you not have to remember. Anyways, this little tool called the Trooper Tool. Oh, Jocko Podcast Trooper Tool. Thanks to Brady for that one. Brady, props. So it's, it's a cool little thing. It's like this just small little thing. It's pretty cool. You, you click on... There's there's a little link on both the websites. So you click on the thing. It asks you if you want it. You click yes. Puts a little icon there on your browser. And it basically directs you to the to the affiliate Amazon link um, automatically. Perfect. So you don't got to think. Yeah, it's dope. And that's, just, that's a really uh, <laughs> easy way to support the podcast. Yeah. And... The the it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. It costs Amazon something. And it seems to me like Amazon can afford to kick a little bit to the podcast over here, well, right? Yeah, and Just really, a bit. it does serve its purpose because you know Amazon, you know, like Amazon, they're you know they're a good company, provides good stuff, good service, and all that, and they're trying to get the word out. Mm-hmm. And you know they they partner with people who who can get the word out. Yeah, and, and there's people that are going to go, oh, you know what, I want to support the podcast, so I will buy this instead of buying it through some other website. They're going right. to go to the, the, the store that's going to support something that they enjoy or something yeah. that they get value out of, hopefully, yeah. from this podcast. So, yeah, that's an awesome way to support. We appreciate it. And it makes it like, it's kind of, this little tool is kind of cool because it kind of makes it official. You know, like if you're, I mean, if you're one of the people that that listen to this and really talk with us and stuff, it's a, it is a cool way to kind of be more part of the 
the group, I guess. I don't yeah. know. It seems like it. When I put mine up there, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm like yeah. a fish. I don't know. It felt We're like that. We're in the game. Me. I don't know. Yeah. Echo Charles is in the game. Yeah. And we dig that. So it was cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a really cool tool. You don't have to. It's safe. It's not like this. You just put it on. If you don't want it on there anymore, for just whatever reason. Right click it. Right click and it. Because you made a little video that shows. You <laughs> go to the Jocko Podcast YouTube channel. And yeah. Echo Charles made a video, a very high-speed instructional video on how to do this. I wasn't trying to waste anybody's time. It's you, really easy. You are not playing around with the instructional video. I think uh, that was very impressive. Yeah. And, and by the way, subscribe. Do me a favor, troopers. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, the, the Jocko Podcast YouTube channel. That way, when Echo – because been, I've been hacking on Echo to make little outtakes and – other little conversations and videos, and he's like, "Well, you know, we we got some subscribers, but maybe you know, if we had some more, maybe I'd be more." So we need to motivate Echo Charles just a little bit, because so we could get some outtake videos, some other other interesting videos. I wanted to do a little pre-video today of what it was like when we we're getting set up, because we have a little ritual that we go through when we're making some some beverages. You know, some alpha some alpha brainy, yeah. and we have you know. So I was like, ah, it'd be pretty cool if you shot a little video. And he's like, well, you know, maybe <laughs> Are one you day. To imitate me right now? No, I, I actually am imitating <laughs> you. So subscribe to the. I don't think it doesn't. I mean, just just go to go to the Jocko Podcast channel on YouTube. Subscribe. Yeah, yeah. I think it's youtubecom Podcast. And also, what's cool about that is when you do that, then you get little emails that say, not like you just get an email that says, hey. Jocko Podcast just uploaded a new video. I get those, and I'm right. always like, "Oh yeah, cool! Now I can watch the video." And even that's optional. Oh okay. You can opt you can, out if you, you can want. Opt out. But yeah, that's a good. And I have um, remember that that one uh, chat children's book idea I had. Yeah, you probably forget because no, you need to remind me. I got a lot of ideas. Anyway, I have head. that. I have that on video when we're talking. Anyway. Oh oh yeah, that'd be funny. funny. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you, I'm gonna post some some things you got to understand. So. I have a certain stand. This is, I'm ta- not talking to you, Echo. I'm talking to people that are listening right now. I mean, you're here too, so I guess I'm talking to you too. But people got to understand that there's a certain expectation in my mind of what the podcast is and what it's supposed to be. So when something happens that's not quite there, I'm like, you know what? I don't really, hey, you know, I don't want to talk about that on the podcast. But this, like, for instance, before we hit record, we're recording, but before we go, before I open the show, we're talking about something, right? We're always talking about something. And sometimes those conversations are 20 minutes, half an hour. We're talking about real stuff. We're talking about legit things. But we haven't even introduced the podcast yet, so that goes in the scrap pile. Right. Now, some of the scrap pile material, while it might not be in March marching step with what the podcast is, it does perhaps have a have a life that it could live and it could right. could guide people in a certain way and it's stuff that people might be interested in. So that could be the YouTube download. You know, right. do YouTube just post it on there so that way people get a little taste of other things around the podcast, which I think people would dig. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So like you know, if you free your mind, Echo the, Charles, free your yeah, mind. I, yeah, I, you, you you're totally right. Um, the well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> once for once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know how if you listen to it on iTunes, you're like, why am I going to sit and watch Echo and Jocko talk right. to each other? You know, I listen to one, and I got to look at them too. You yeah. know, a lot of people might not be interested in that. There's some really mo- there's some moments. Subscribe. You know what I do is I well I watch certain moments of the podcast on youtube yeah 
like when I know I was feeling intense about something, I go and see what it see what that looks like. See like, okay, what does that look like when I'm feeling that? Does it look like does it look like from the outside what it feels it like feels, from the inside? Because yeah. even today I was getting pretty fired up. Like mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about heroes. And young man, man, 18, 19, 20 years old that said, okay, this unpopular war, I'll go fight it. I'll go fight it. You know, I'll go risk my life. I'll go out there in the jungle and live in, you know, I was, I was, uh, out this week in the field, right? Camping. I, I I kept putting it in quotes on Twitter. I was putting in quotes because I was like, I can't call this the field, but you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't the comfort of a house right Mm. it was in it was and it was you know bugs and ants and and i'm like thinking to myself you know this is nothing and i was thinking back to uh to the forgotten highlander and remember the bugs were just eating those guys alive Mm. and you know you just you just can't you can't compare so these guys that that just stepped up fought i just want to I just want to always, you know, that, that kind of thing will get me fired up. So when I go back to the videos, sometimes I go, man, what, what was I looking like right yeah. there? You know, a little yeah. self-assessment. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, you know, because when I'm feeling that way, I'm like, okay, you got to detach a little bit because you're starting to get a little bit fired up. I'm going to start breaking. I'm going to start getting like really emotional about something. And so mm-hmm. I got a, I got a little red flag goes up. I go, you got to back off a little bit here. Mm-hmm. We don't have to edit the video <laughs> if I break down. Yep. So I got to just back off. And sometimes I got to see what does that look like? Does it look, can you tell, am I looking, you know, so that's the kind of thing that I like to go back and look at the YouTube videos and say, you know, what does this, what does this look like? Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. There's some value. In, there's a lot of value on YouTube that, I'm, that we're probably not, uh, you know, capitalizing on, I don't know, whatever, for, for yeah. people who, who care. And listen. it's weird too, because the, the interesting thing about all this is you use the word capitalize, right? And the fact of the matter is we aren't really capitalizing on this at all and i keep getting told by a variety of different people what to do to you to do what that right there to capitalize yeah i meant it just capitalize not for us to capitalize. Yeah, I, mean, I know for everybody you know people I, I listen know. but what we what we want to do mm. is we want to maximize the effort that we put in here we want to maximize it so that people get the most out of it yeah that's know? what it, yeah, that's that's what i know that's what you meant i know you didn't mean like let's run to the cash machine because we're doing it for the passion of doing it that's what I'm sitting here for. Mm-hmm. Sitting here so I can tell so I can tell this story right here about these guys. Yeah. And I know, you know, I know I get, I hear from all kinds of cops. I hear from my my SEAL buddies that are still in that are listening to it that are asking me texting me questions going, "Hey man, what's going on with this? Hey, what would you have done differently here?" Hey, th- those are my buddies that are in that are getting ready to deploy overseas right now. And I get texts and emails and Twitter things from guys that were guys that are active duty in the Marine Corps and and the Army. So I know that we're getting the word out there, and that's what that's what I'm sitting here for. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and you make a good point with, you know, there's a lot of people who don't watch the video. Of course, I mean, that yeah, totally makes yeah. sense. It's I mean, podcast, I don't yeah. watch podcast videos. Right. I mean, right. why? Why? You know, the reason podcasts are so convenient is you can be doing something else. Yes. You don't have to dedicate. You don't have to dedicate your all your senses to it. You yeah. only have to dedicate two of them. Your ears and your brain. Yeah. But you don't have to dedicate your eyes. You don't have to dedicate your ass to sit down in a chair and watch something. You can right. walk around. You can do yard work. You can drive. You can do what you got to do. Yeah. But 
I think the shorter little YouTube clips where you go, hey, check this out. This is right. when Jocko and I were discussing a kid's book that Echo was talking about. Or Good idea, by the way. Yeah. I'm going to post it. Yeah, post that thing up. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because a lot of people apparently don't, I mean, don't, are surprised that I look different than I sound, I guess. Oh, yeah. They think you're a skinny white hipster. Or, yeah. That's, that's what cool. they think you maybe, are. Maybe I am at heart. Maybe you are at heart. Yeah. You're just trapped. Maybe you identify as a skinny white hipster, maybe. even though you're a a two hundred and twenty. I don't know. Pounds. No, I don't know. Hey, I don't. I don't identify myself by my physical characteristics. Like you know, it's like what's that. in my heart and my mind. The content of your character. Yeah, the content of my character. Yeah, I think the YouTube idea is a good idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll post more. So I have a lot too, man. So many outtakes. A lot. Oh. All right, and yep. you've done some it's really like, good outtake videos in the past. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty. Yeah, <laughs> from when we were filming commercials and stuff. Oh, right, right, yes, 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 yeah, those were good. Yes. Um, all right, all right anything else? Jocko, you in? Jocko store? Did you talk about that? Yes, go to the store, buy some, buy some merchandise. Yeah. Somebody hit me up on Twitter the other day, and they're like, "Hey, you should set up a." We got asked this a bunch of times. Set up a Patreon. Patreon is that what it's called? Patreon. Patreon, yeah, Patreon. where you can donate to the podcast a certain yeah. amount. And I just said, "Hey, man, go buy a T-shirt. You know that supports us just as well, yeah. and you get a T-shirt." And just that's a good way to support the podcast. Yeah. Buy some merchandise. Buy some gear. Right. Yeah. The the Jocko store. That's a good one. T-shirts, coffee mugs, stickers. Those are kind of cool. Um, one of my friends saw two Jocko stickers in the wild. In the wild. In one day. Yeah. Dang. Or maybe just where, over where, the where, weekend. What location? Here, here in San Diego. Oh, everyone in San Diego. We know everyone in San Diego. It doesn't count. I don't know. I yeah. I want to see it in know. Cleveland. <laughs> it counts. It counts. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Awesome. That's good. Yep. So. Now we get to those questions from the interwebs. First question. Chaco, is a minimal amount of competent defensive ability, self-defense, essentially, the most overlooked essential stabilizer of young male psyche? So this question, this actually, this actually came across the interwebs as a as a statement, an opinion. Right. And I, I kind of rephrased it just a little bit to make it into a question, but it actually came across someone was saying, look, he believes, this person believes that they, knowing how to fight, you know, competent defensive, defensive ability, I call that knowing how to fight, is, and he thinks it's the most essential stabilizer of a young male psyche. I agree with this statement. I think that... Yeah, I completely agree with it. I think that learning how to fight and knowing how to fight gives you real confidence and security, not just in the form of being secure, but as as a in in opposition to insecurity, insecurity. right? <laughs> because when you know how to fight, all of a sudden you don't have anything to prove anymore. Yeah. And when you, this changes so many, I you know, I wish I would have learned how to fight at a much younger. We fought all the time when I was a kid. We fought. We didn't know how to fight. So what do we have to do? Prove that we knew how to fight. Yeah. If we actually knew how to fight, we wouldn't have to prove that all the time. So I, I absolutely agree with this. And that's why I'm constantly trying to get people uh, to get into jiu-jitsu. It's, you know, get your kids into jiu-jitsu. Get your 13-year-old boy, your 10-year-old boy, get him into jiu-jitsu. Your girl, too. I mean, your girl, too. Because your girl is going to use it for defense. Mm -hmm. um, girls don't have the constant tension of fighting that guys have. It is part of who we are. When I shake someone's hand, 
I don't care what kind of mood I'm in. I am thinking about taking them down. I am thinking about what I'm going to do to them in a fight. It doesn't matter if I'm meeting Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about doing a double leg. I'm thinking about what, what his weight is. Does he have cauliflower hair? That's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And guys do that. Guys do that. And it's real. And I mean, especially in the environment I grew up in, the SEAL teams, I mean, everybody's got that constant like test. Well, yeah. between, the it's, evaluation. It's, it's the evaluation. Yep. So if you don't know how to fight, there's only one way to figure out where you are, mm-hmm. and that is to fight. And so you end up doing stupid things, stupid things to prove your your manhood. And I hate to use that word, but you end up doing stupid things to prove your manhood. So my recommendation um, is, well, I totally agree with this statement. I think it is a huge stabilizer of of your personality and and your psyche as a man. So teach, get those kids to learn jujitsu. They're gonna understand. The other thing is, you understand violence you respect it because you know you got choked out you know it's happened you know that that is a horrible feeling it's a horrible feeling when another human being can control you a hundred percent you know what physically it doesn't matter how smart you are anymore i'm sorry it doesn't matter (laughs) it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how smart you are anymore when you are getting completely physically dominated by someone it doesn't matter that you're smarter than them at that time there's nothing you can do about it yeah. You could. What are you going to challenge them to a spelling bee? It's yeah. not going to help you. <laughs> you're you're under their control, and that's yeah, a right. horrible, horrible feeling. Yeah. And so I think it's uh you know, and I felt that you know when I was a kid, you know, I got bullied just like everybody. Everybody gets bullied at a certain point. You know, you show up to high school, you're 13 years old. I was thir- I was a young, whatever, however that works when you are born. That yep, was born in September, so yep. I was a young, scrawny kid. And I didn't get bullied to some crazy extent, but you get picked on, mm-hmm. you get picked on, you get in little scuffles and you get thrown around by a kid that's, that reached puberty when he was nine and he's now, you know, six feet, 220. And I'm showing up at school, 13 years old, weighing a buck 45. You're going to get, you're going to get physically controlled and it's not fun. And so I didn't know how to fight. I was trying to figure it out. And there was no, no one knew how to fight back then, unless you were a boxer, maybe a wrestler. Um, but yeah, so definitely this is a huge piece helps you with, I think, I think kids that know how to fight are going to get in a lot less street fights. They're going to do a lot less stupid things to prove themselves Mm -hmm. because guess what? They already have the essential primal animalistic characteristic of physical domination. And that goes a long way. Yeah. And, and we talked about this before. Um, back to the the girls thing, getting your girls into it. You know how when you get into any kind of physical situation, even if you're in a crowd and someone starts shoving someone else, mm-hmm. not even you, and boom, you feel the force of somebody, or someone's just all like on you, or even if someone like I don't know tackles you or something like that, it's like this kind of imposed physical situation. Mm-hmm. And when you're into jujitsu, that's every day. That's so every you day. get used to that real quick. Yeah. And in fact, you get real comfortable with it. But as a girl, you're not trying to like win fights now. You know, I know jujitsu, I'm going to try to win fights and beat up guys. That's not really what it's for for girls. It's more for knowing how to function, knowing where to be, where not to be. Because, man, if you don't know, you just simply don't know. And, and also being, yeah, and also being totally right. And then also being inoculated to the, the, 
physical contact yeah. when it happens. So it won't and I'll tell you, you, you yeah. say you can't win. I mean, not looking to win fights. There's go watch YouTube. Yeah, there's all kinds of videos of girls yeah. just oh, yeah. working over guys, nope. and I mean in street fights. Yeah, there's one in particular where this girl's just ch- triangle arm lock, just choke, yeah. just crushing this kid. Yeah, well, the I mean, the, the truth is. If you learn jujitsu, if someone knows jujitsu, someone doesn't. the mm-hmm. The chance of the person knowing jujitsu winning the fight is very, very, yes. very high. Yes. Even if you're a girl, it still applies to you. Yep. Of course, the girl's at a physical dif- disadvantage because she's smaller, weaker, whatever. But like I said, jujitsu is just this huge jump mm-hmm. in, you know, ability as far as fights go. And you know something else, from a pure self defense perspective, if you a lot of times, let's say a girl's not able to physically, let's say she's 100 pounds and she's a guy attacks her that's 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. She might not be able to put him to sleep. She might not be able to finish him, but she may be able to be able to survive, yep. fend the guy off for a minute and 30 seconds instead of two seconds, yep. instead of four seconds, yep. instead of eight seconds. So that's what it takes for someone to hear, for someone to see. So every second counts. And if you know jujitsu, I guarantee you, uh, it's it's really hard to subdue somebody that knows some jujitsu if you don't yep. know anything. You oh, are yeah. going to have a hard time getting control of them. They're going to they're gonna be, and even if you're stronger than them, you'll be able to get a hold of them maybe eventually if they're a lot smaller and a lot weaker than you, but it's going to be a fight. And a lot of, a lot of you know, you read a lot of stories when in self-defense situations, if the girl puts up a decent fight, the guy's not going to have any of it. You know, he's exactly. going to realize that he's not looking for that. He's not looking for a fight. He's looking for something else. Yeah. And so the fight begins. He backs off. So, yeah, absolutely. It applies for, for girls as well. And there's just a certain level of confidence. Yeah. You know, and I've seen that. You know, my son's had a couple of little scuffles, a couple that I've witnessed, too, where, uh, you know, he just was, like, not trying to, not trying to have a problem. Until someone just grabs him and is obviously going to do try and do something to him, and then that person's getting launched, you know, yeah. like hey, perfect judo because you're going to get, you know, how hard is it to judo throw somebody that doesn't know any judo or jiu-jitsu? It's yeah. so easy. So yeah. you see a kid fly through the air, hit the ground. <laughs> you see my son, you know, just like there's no guard passing because the person doesn't even know what the right. guard is. There is no so guard it's just defense. straight to mount. Yeah. And then once you're in mount, the person has no idea what's happening, nope. and and they're completely controlled and they're getting put to sleep. That's yeah. it. It's as easy as that. Yeah, and it's so funny how you, this is kind of the part that I forget, actually, every once in a while, where you, how you brought up when you shake someone's hand, you're always thinking about it or whatever. So that's that's the Arm thing, track. too. That's why that's why it's almost like if you don't know jiu-jitsu, like, or, or for real fighting, there's not many out there, man. There's not many. Mm-hmm. But even, we'll just say, if you don't know jiu-jitsu, you might fall into this trap by thinking, well, you know, I might... You know, you never know. He's not on all the time or he might not be ready for this or, you know, I'll surprise him with a like this punch or something like this. And they'll, they won't give it its due credit. Be, nope. But the thing is, when you learn jujitsu, bro, that's all you're thinking about. You're like, oh, fuck, take this guy right here. 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. You you can be laying in your in your bed with your wife mm-hmm. and she'll be like, hey, give me a hug. And you're like, Let me get that underhook there. Mm-hmm. Yes, for exactly. Sure. The whole time. So you can't really... To surprise a guy who knows jujitsu, to surprise him is super hard. Yeah. Like you got to do from behind. I don't know. Even yeah. if you see him from behind, yeah. like you know what to do from behind. You know, it's a, you got to like I don't know, hit him or something really hard, knock him out one punch from yeah, behind. Yeah, or yeah. Something and it's like really that. hard to knock somebody out with yeah. one punch from behind. So yeah, but that's so funny because um, that that is how it is. Even as like a top, like a high level guy, you're still like 
it's always on your mind. Like always. it's like you're walking around with this big, powerful like gun or something. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, okay, who wants to get shot? Not that you want to shoot people specifically, but it's like this radar that's like, okay, who wants to get shot? Kind of thing. Because you're just ready. It's ready. You know, you're just it's ready to just, do it every, the whole time. Yeah. And to me, honestly, it's so instinctive. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. It's yeah. just part of every movement that you make. Yep. Is thinking about that and you know you know you ever had somebody that doesn't know jujitsu like maybe you haven't seen someone in a while i've had that happen when i've seen, seen someone for a while yes all and time. i mean yes. 20 years so they have no <laughs> idea what jujitsu is we've gone right. completely different paths in our yeah. lives and they like grab hold of you as if it was the old days and you're right. gonna have a tussle yeah and it's yeah it's just a it's just a four second yeah. you know spirit crushing yeah. maneuver of death yeah and and you're happy to do it too you yeah. know because as an adult like you know i think anywhere past 26 27 years old it's hard to get away with like getting into a wrestling match in public or you know somewhere outside hmm. of the match. that's interesting <laughs> yeah, you, might, guess, you might not have known that not, yeah. but yeah i don't know i think i speak for more than more people than just myself but you there's a part of your mind that kind of hopes it it happens just with your friend you know or something like that just so you well, can yeah, do it. Well, of like course. Always on You're your always, mind. You always know? hoping for a, yeah. for a scrap. You know what? Ironically, back to the part where, where I was saying um, it's kind of hard to surprise a jiu-jitsu guy. Ironically, the easiest time to surprise a jiu-jitsu guy is on the mat if you're another jiu-jitsu guy. What you do is you play like, oh, we're just going light right now. And then you go hard, you know? Mm. So you can't really surprise them in the like in public. You gotta like, you gotta learn jujitsu. Go on the mat, yeah, roll with I, them, make them think you're not rolling hard. Then surprise them. And you know, I think that's part of it is you become more aware when you're just talking. What you've been talking about the past couple of minutes is awareness. Yeah. And when you have jujitsu in your brain, then oh, and it's true with boxing too and, and muay thai. When you have that stuff in your brain, then you can't help but be aware of what's happening around you because it's in there. Yeah. It's like knowing that the color of the table is brown. Like you, you know what that person's body position is. You're looking and seeing that their stance is off balance. You're seeing an underhook exposed. You're, yeah. You know, so you can't help, you can't take it away. So your awareness increases. You also are aware of what problems can occur really quickly. So if you start, you know, if you're a girl and you say, oh, wait a second, now I'm back into a corner where I can't get out. I don't like this feeling. Yeah. It becomes, it increases your awareness as a human. It makes you yeah. more aware of your surroundings. So yeah. there's so many benefits. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And it, you kind of have almost like one level up from that awareness that you're talking about, because like how you're saying, it's part of that. Even if you don't know how to fight, it's still kind of on your mind. You know, you it, like all guys have that kind of sort of, sort mm-hmm. of evaluation, especially if the guy's close to your, close to you, yep. who you are, yep. you know, whether it be age, size, whatever, whatever the scenario even. Like if you're a scholar and no one else is a scholar, then another scholar walks in, ooh, this evaluation, yeah. you know. So that's how it is naturally. See how smart this guy is. Yeah, yeah. So well, so as a guy, just naturally you're going to have even more. It's like you know what the color of brown is or whatever, but just instinctually you're always looking for brown. That's kind of what it's like. So now you, when you're doing these evaluations that are going to happen anyway – your jujitsu mind is right there at the front, yeah. ready the whole time. Yeah, Indeed. interesting. 
Training yeah. jiu-jitsu people. But that's not to be confused with like you're aggressive and want to fight. That's the weird thing. It's like you don't want to actually fight with people because you don't feel the need to like, oh, I got to, I don't know. Yeah, you don't have anything to prove anything. That's, yeah. that's where this whole conversation started off. And also, now you not feel like you need to prove anything. But I literally am like, oh, do I really want to get in a fight with this guy? I'm going to get my knuckles, you know. Right. I'm probably going to rip my t-shirt. This guy's going to yeah, grab. Yeah, yeah. Is this really? No. I, I fight every right. single day yeah. i don't need i don't i don't care about this guy yeah. this is a two second thing where i gotta scuff up my knee right. on the pavement and he's probably gonna rip my sh- my shirt and that's gonna be a pain and i gotta deal <laughs> with the cops if they show up it's yeah. just a big pain yeah. whereas if you don't fight and you have that opportunity maybe you got that thing inside you and, you know no right the payoff no. of the fight right if you don't know or, or if you're just insecure or whatever <laughs> the payoff of the fight and hopefully winning is bigger than all the detriments that you gotta I, I used to tell my platoon guys um when we were overseas before the war started and you know so guys are overseas what are you doing you're drinking you're out in bars you're causing problems or whatever and i you know before you go out i'd be like hey guys if you feel like fighting tonight come find me because if you want to fight, come find me, and it'll be all be good. You right, know, right. You, you know, we'll we'll fight, and it's all good. You won't get in trouble. You won't get arrested. You won't get hurt. It's all good. Oh, you'll get in trouble. You'll you, get in trouble for sure. You're not going to get in trouble with the law, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get in that kind of trouble. You're yeah, going to get in trouble in your situation and your in your positioning is going to yeah. be troublesome. <laughs> so, yeah, it's better to fight amongst yourself than to fight against the outsiders who are going to sue you, pull a knife out and stab you in the throat, whatever. Right? Yeah. Don't do that. Stay out of the street fights. Not worth it. Yep. All right. I agree with it, too, though. You said you agree that it is the stabilizer. Indeed. It is. Because if you don't know, you don't even know how much you don't know. Mm. It's funny because we get a lot of people that have started training jiu-jitsu. Good move. Yes. But but they'll come on Twitter or on on the Facebooky and and say, you know, um, hey, I started training jiu-jitsu. Oh, my God. Mm. I can't believe I I need to train this all the time. I can't yep. believe I got control. Got how humi- yeah. they always say how humiliating, right. and sometimes they say humbling. But right. sometimes I think even when they say humbling, they actually mean humiliating because right. they you. That's the weird thing when you're walking around on the earth without <laughs> the knowledge. You, you think know. you look at other yeah. people and you think you know what this guy knows jujitsu. I heard this guy knows jiu-jitsu. It doesn't matter. I'm strong. Yeah. I'm athletic. I'll just hit him in the neck. I'll just hit him in the neck. Or yeah. even, even, you know what? I'm just strong enough. He's not going to get my... How is he going to get my arm over there? Yeah. It's not going to work. Yeah. I'll just pull my arm back. Right, right. And you get on the mat and you go, oh my lord, I have no control over this situation. Yeah. This guy is effortlessly making me submit over and over and over again. And that's when the reality hits. The reality hits doesn't hit on the first time you tap. Because on the first time you tap, you go, oh, I'm, I'm going to... I'll just, I won't do that single movement again. I won't stick my head over there. Okay. So then you get your arm locked. Yeah. And then you get your foot locked. And then you get your knee locked. And then you get Camuro. And then you get guillotined again. And then you get rear. So you all, it's just a lose, 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 lose. And then you go, after, usually for me, it's like three to five times with somebody that's never trained jiu-jitsu before, three to five times before they realize like, oh, the, I will never. Because you know when you tap a guy once that's never trained before and he comes at you so hard, in his mind, he thinks, yeah, oh, this time I'm going to get him. Yeah. And they don't even come close. They don't even realize. Yeah. So yeah, get on the mat, man, and learn learn the jiu-jitsu. Yep. Please cover the over, or please cover overcoming the frustrations of beginning jiu-jitsu. And this is coming from a 54-year-old, by the way, but not quitting. Good good for him. Uh, that's awesome. Glad you're picking up the jiu-jitsu at 54 years old. 
Uh, okay, so how do you, the frustrations of beginning JJ, and it is absolutely, if you have the wrong mindset, it's viciously frustrating because of everything we just talked about. You think, oh, I'll just do this and I'll just go a little bit harder and I just won't put my arm there and then I'll be able to win. You're not going to win. You are going to lose. You're going to lose over and over and over again to people that are smaller than you, weaker than you, not as tough as you are, literally not as tough as you are. Not as tough as you are. You know, jiu-jitsu has a faction of of nerds, for lack of a better word, straight nerds. And no offense to the nerds out there, but, you know, people that are not physically active and then some, for some reason they fall into jiu-jitsu at some point, and, and, they, and they, all of a sudden they've got a guy that's, they're not tough, but they'll know, they, the, moves, they, they'll know the moves and they'll finish you. So, that, yeah. so those are the people you're going to lose to. So, and it's a, it's a long, long slow journey that takes a long time now that being said if you train for a month and someone's trained zero that journey's not that long you'll beat that guy yeah you you will beat that guy i mean Mm -hmm. you know again you take two people one of them knows jujitsu for a month and one of them doesn't that guy's gonna win i mean you know basic weight same weight basic same you know you can't have somebody that's completely weak but in six months, you're beating anybody that's untrained. For, you know, you're beating ninety five percent, maybe even ninety nine percent of the people that are untrained. But 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 as far as like you think you show up, and in six months you're going to be beating a blue belt, it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, it's not happening. A beating a purple belt is not happening. You, you're not going to you're not going to catch a purple belt yeah. in in your first two or three years. Um, Unless you got just somebody yeah. that doesn't, or he lets you, yeah, yeah, he lets of course, you like yeah, and, and like Glover, Jeff Glover, he'll yeah. he'll he'll let people put him in all kinds. I mean, he does that in competition. You just saw that at Metamorphosis. He he lets all kinds of crazy things happen. So yeah, can that happen? Of course. But as far as legitimately, yeah, taking someone down, going. yeah, it's not going to happen. So so that's all. That's what I'm saying is a long, slow journey, especially too because everyone's on that bus we've talked about this before everyone's on the bus getting better so that blue belt that started that you started six months behind or a year behind so he's a blue belt you're a year behind him he's not stopping getting better so as you start to pursue his game his game is evolving and changing and improving so you're not going to get there and then on top of that when you do learn something new it takes time to incorporate into your game. So if I taught you Echo a new move tonight, mm-hmm. I said, "Hey, here's this cool. It's, it's here's this new setup for the arm lock," and we drilled it ten times, and you went now and started to apply that, it would make your game worse because you'd be trying to apply a move that you don't know a hundred percent yet. Like you got some good solid moves that you do, and those are. You know, those work really well. So when you start incorporating this new move, right. you don't Eating. know it well. You don't yeah. get it all together. So you're going to fail at it a hundred times. It's not going to work a hundred times before you get it. And by the way, every time you tried it on me, I got on top and then I smashed you. And right. then I, so you're, you're sacrificing and it's in every time. So you're actually going backwards a little bit before right. you can go forward. So that's problematic and that's very, very frustrating. Occasionally you might learn something that like really improves your game dramatically almost instantly. That happens from time to time. Someone will say, hey, put your arm position here, or hey, you know, whatever the case may be. But generally, when you incorporate something new, it can take some time. You're going to get injuries. You're going to get little injuries. You're going to get big injuries. You're going to be sore. You're going to, so yes, you will be frustrated. So how do you counter all that? You just got to embrace it. You got to embrace all those things. You got to enjoy all those things. 
and I hate to be cliche here, but you got to enjoy the journey. You got to enjoy getting tapped out by somebody that's small. Be amazed by that. Yep. Say, dang, how did that just happen? That is impressive. Yep. Uh, you know, say, hey, got a little war scar on my face. I got, you know, split the eye open. Okay, cool. Chicks dig scars. You know, I mean, just going to go. Don't, don't, don't look at all that stuff as negative. Look at it as, you know, it's like, don't rush to the end. Uh, don't rush to the end. Don't yeah. be in a rush to get there. Take your time and enjoy the sights that you're going to go for. Also, I've said this before. Select your training partners carefully, especially like you're 54 years old. You don't want to be rolling with a 20-year-old steroid freak that's going white belt trying to kill you. You want to be rolling with a cool, mellow, purple belt that's wants to do jiu-jitsu yeah. and, and train. Um, and finally, I would just say... Remember that jujitsu should be fun. It should be all those other things, all those frustrating, all those challenges, all those things, all that humiliation and humi- and getting humbled. But it should be a good time. You yeah. should have fun when you're doing jujitsu. I know I do. Yeah, yeah, like a video game, right? You know how I, mean, I was out of get... town for a couple of days, man, and I came back and I had a little injury that I figured figured out. It took me a little while. I got my jacked up finger, and it took me a little while, a little while to uh, get the right get the right apparatus to splint it properly and protect it but it's but tonight i train and i was so happy <laughs> i was so happy going yeah. and getting on the mat just saying yes yeah that that is how we're all these all the junk parts that come with it were quote-unquote junk but you know like the the, the soreness, yeah, yeah. The, i got choked out or whatever that's all part of the game seems obvious right yeah it's all part of the game but be happy that that's the game you're in mm-hmm. you know so i mean jujitsu basic i mean if you don't do jujitsu this would be kind of kind of an inside basically all it is you go if you go to a class you go in you you may or may not warm up you learn a, a move whether it be a submission move or just a move you learn a move two moves three moves sometimes four moves and then you cut to rolling straight up you guys are fighting no mm-hmm. strikes that's it you're fighting no strikes if you, whatever moves you know, go ahead and do them in real life mm-hmm. against this guy. That's it. If you don't know, if that's your first day and you learn one, two, three moves that first day, you better try to do those moves. Mm-hmm. That's it. So, of course, you know two, three moves that you learned once, by the way. And you roll with someone who, even if he's still a white belt or whatever, he knows those moves and then, you know, three, four more. And he's practiced them in, you know, in real time or whatever. Of course, he's going to get you. You know, that's just how it works. But keep in mind, the more you go, the more you do the moves, the more moves you learn, the more you practice them in real life, the better you get at them. And, and you know, let's go ahead and just apply this to life as well. Because jujitsu is such a great metaphor for life. Whatever you're doing, whatever goal you're trying to achieve, if you're letting those frustrations, when you hit those obstacles, if you're letting them control you and get you down, that's the wrong attitude to have. Yep. Look at it as a learning opportunity. Look at it as something that's good that's happening. Look at it as, as a chance for you to try something new. Look at it as the journey that you're trying to achieve. And by the way, anything that's easy to achieve and you don't hit any obstacles, well, that's not worth it, right? That's not, that's not going to get the full satisfaction that you want out of that. So in life, as in jujitsu, don't get frustrated. Embrace those challenges because those are what is making this goal worthwhile. Yeah, man. And I'm telling you when you, let's say you, well, back to the, um, avoiding frustration specifically, um, it does, how you were saying, training partners, that does make a big difference. Because sometimes, every once in a while, like I've, I've heard of um, people where they, their schedule doesn't allow 
them to catch like the beginner class, for example. So they're like, hey, I have no choice. I got to do this more intermediate or advanced class. So they're the only white belt and the next, you know, guy even closest to him is like an advanced blue belt. So that's going to be a steep learning curve. It's going to be tough. Because it's how are you going to practice your moves in the wild? Never, you won't get to work your offense. Yeah, it's really. But here's, the, here's kind of the good thing: you get to work your defense. Your, your so when you do awesome. get the opportunity to exercise like your offense, whether you you get another class or it just comes but just takes longer, whatever. But you know how good your defense is going to be. Yeah, and I actually so from training with Dean for so many years, you know he's just got some positions that are brutal, yes. brutal positions. And, you know, for instance, his mount is, is outstanding. He's, when he gets the mount, when anybody else that I've ever trained with in my life has mounted, with the exception, I guess, of, of Hicks and Gracie, I felt like, oh, well, it's not Dean. This is not, you know, this is not a horrible not scenario. Yeah. Right. And not that I'm not that worried. I'm not trying to degrade people I've trained with. Right. But that is a, Dean has an incredible mount. And on top of that, Dean kind of knows my escapes. So whereas if I roll with a random other really good, you know, world-class black belt they might not know the particulars of my escape dean actually does know those and he's good at it. and he's good at it so yeah. so you're right in that the more you train with people that are better than you your your defense is going to become very good because like when you mount me i mean you got a good solid mount but i'm not i'm like i'm like okay cool i'm gonna be out of this in a, in a short period of time with with no real threats keep telling me <laughs> And and the re and you've had I mean I'm sure it's the same way you've had Dean mounted on you I mean my mount because I don't have a great mount my mount is nothing compared to Dean's yeah. nothing yeah yeah fully yeah and that's absolutely true and at the same time though so if you fall in and I don't want to say it's like a small because it's a pretty big chance where if you enter a beginner class there's going to be a guy who's just as much of a beginner yeah. as you yeah. and that's where you can really flourish because you're you can practice moves. Your new moves, which, I mean, for lack of a better term, your junk moves you know, on junk people. I, I will say this, though. Whoever you roll with, whether they're worse than you, the same as you, or better than you, you're going to get a lot out of it. Of course. All yes. three of them. Yes. So you should roll with all three of those types of people. I have a tendency to want to usually roll with guys that are, you know, like, good and mm-hmm. and... I should spend more, and I, I do. I mean, I definitely I train with everybody that we got at the gym. I'll train with everybody, but I always prefer, of course. I guess I shouldn't say of course because there are people that are like white belt hunters <laughs> right. that want to go out there and be bullies. I'm not like that. I'd rather get bullied, right? I want to get, I want to feel the, I, w- I want to get after it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but you definitely get benefit from training with people that are better than you, worse than you. And the same as you, because you practice yeah. one of them, you're practicing defense. One of them, you're practicing pure offense. And someone that's equal than you, you got to start practicing your setups and and your approaches, and you got to yeah. learn how to de- defend and yeah. do offense and defense at the same time. So it's all good. Roll. Yeah. That's basically the concept here. Roll. Yes. Yeah, so get after consider, it. Consider that scenario. You roll with. And you're talking from an ideal standpoint. Roll with people better than you, same as you, worse than you, or you know, not as good as you. Um, for a beginner, that's not really the option. The worst than you guys, that's not an option for a beginner, like, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's no one that's so, worse than them. Well, as far as <laughs> overcoming the frustrations or whatever, it is a good situation where you can get in with guys just as beginner as you, and and hope that they hang around because after a certain amount of time, those guys who aren't as new or or who I are, could I could see where it could become frustrating if you were the guy that you were talking about earlier. Let's say a guy that's you have to work late and you can only go to the advanced class 
and all of a sudden you think jujitsu is just getting crushed yeah. and destroyed. Like, all and the time. I can't learn this really. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like so I'm I guess the distance good. to to understand, but yeah, that's that's a good point. So keep in mind that if you're in that situation, it's okay. You're gonna you're gonna when you eventually get to roll with people that are more your skill level, you will be uh you'll be that much better off. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and watch the first time you tap someone out with a move that you learned. <sighs> Celebrate that, did you? Yeah, that's a good that's a good time for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Jocko. How do you balance the idea of checking the ego while in an interview scenario where you need to talk about yourself? Okay, so good good question. I I would say in that situation, and that's something that it's not just an interview situation where you're going to need to do that. I mean, you're dealing with your your superiors, you know, throughout the course of your career, whatever that may be. You're constantly interacting with people, and you can, you're going to want to make an impression. Uh, so I, I think one of the best ways to do this is instead of you speaking about why you're so awesome, just state facts of let's say accomplishments and let them speak for themselves. In other words, you know, you wouldn't want to say, uh, you know, I am the best project manager in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not, that's sounds ego centric. You know, instead you'd say, uh, you know, I got this, Hey, we had a $38 million project, got it done on time under budget, ahead of schedule and when I got done with that one they moved me to another project that was off track and we got that one uh, back on schedule and back on track as well so that, that's the kind of experience that I've had and, I, and I'd love to bring that here to this company right mm-hmm. so you're not you're not you know there's a hint of hey this is what I did I can get some stuff done right. but you're not saying listen I'm better than the people you currently have so you should hire me because I'm the best because you don't want to <laughs> do that um, and you know so so yeah, just build, think about it, you know, before you go in, how, what, what experience that you have represents the good qualities that you have. Mm-hmm. So then you can say, if they say, you know, how are you at meeting timelines? You don't say, I am perfect. I'm right. never late. I'm dope. You just say, <laughs> you say, you say, well, you know, as far as meeting timelines, here's a bunch of projects that I got completed on time. The only one that I missed was one that we had to roll back because whatever. That way you're actually showing a little bit more humility. You're saying, hey, here's what happened. You're being logical about it. And, you know, speaking of that, I actually got a good question that's similar to this one um, about what's the best way to interview people to see if they can be in a leadership position. And this is really hard. This is really hard because it's really hard to interviews. And working, I work with all kinds of different companies, and everybody always says, you know, hey, what's the best way to interview? And, man, I interviewed this guy, and he seemed so great. Or I interviewed this woman, and she seemed incredible, and her, her paper looked great. You know, she looked great on paper, and we hired her, and she's a disaster, or he's a disaster, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Because because there's people that are very good interviewers, right? I mean, there's people mm-hmm. that can interview well. They have the gift of gab. They can, they can BS their way through anything and make themselves sound good. So it can be really hard to identify if someone's a good is actually going to be fit for a leadership position or really any position. So one of the things that, that I always tell people to do is when you go into these, when you want to ask interview questions, ask them scenario based questions Mm. and say, okay, here's what's going on. You've got these three people in your department and one of the people has 
come to you and said that they think there might be something illegal going on with the other two, what actions do you take? And, and, you know, have a scenario built out that you can actually talk through and see where they go and see what their mindset is and see what they're going to develop as a plan and see how they would execute plan. So it's a great way of figuring out how people think. Mm. And then, you know, even that's not a guarantee because there's people that can, can navigate those type of answers as well. So, you know, one thing you can do is hire people on a little bit of a trial basis. And that can be difficult in some situations where people are walking away from one job into another job and they're not going to do it on a 90-day trial basis. But when you do have that opportunity, it's a good thing to do as well. Um, But hey, so going back to the first question about keeping your ego in check in an interview, like I said, be confident but not cocky and let the facts of your experience speak for your your abilities rather than beating your own chest yeah so it's almost like i mean correct me if i'm wrong here so you you essentially even if you're talking yourself up you just you simply state the fact that's it you just state the fact don't say your opinion about it no like just like how you were saying simply state the facts yeah here's what i did you know we, right. we turned this project around. We got it on tr- on track and on budget, and that's the type of that's the type of experience that I have in those situations. Right, just like how you're saying, like even if someone had got like an award to be the best, whatever salesman right? of the year, the, right, salesman of the year, the best whatever of the year, and then um, like to say that in a factual way would be I was recognized as mm-hmm. the best guy in the world instead of saying I'm the best guy in the world. Here's right, my right, award right. To, to prove it, you know? So it's like you're seeing the fact that you were recognized, yep. you know? Yep. Not so much the fact. That's a, a that very good way of doing it. Stick to the facts, right? Just the facts. Just the facts. Good. Uh, yeah, sure. Next question. Um, how do you stay humble when you know you have better skill sets than others? You seem humble with all that you've accomplished. Well, this is just what, like in general, just how yeah, do I be humble? Yeah. How do you stay humble when you know you have better skill sets than others? Mm. And then he's saying that I seem humble with all that I've accomplished, which is, which is actually, it, it's funny when I read that, like it's not, I'm sure that for, for the dude that's asking this question, he's thinking I accomplished all this stuff and it's not, I don't feel that way. Like, mm. First of all, there's always somebody that's better than you. That's that, I guarantee it. There's someone that's done more than you. There's someone that's had better experience. There's someone that's accomplished more. And and if you are truly the master of something, whatever one thing you're a true master of, there's going to be people that are a lot better at other things than you. So you might be the master of one particular thing, mm-hmm. but are you you have to respect the fact that people are going to be masters at other things or better than you. I mean, so if you're super strong, that's great. Let's see you run a marathon. If you're super flexible, awesome. How much can you deadlift? If you're if you're smart, that that's great. You're smart academically. Let's check out your common sense and see where all that's at. You know, so so you're, you, you're going to be good at one thing, but you're going to have failed in other areas or have weaknesses in other areas. And so uh, you just have to keep that in check. And, I, and I'll tell you, like, I, I recognize why I've been successful. You know, for one thing, been surrounded with great people. For other, been lucky in certain situations that I've been in certain times. And you know, going back to jujitsu a little bit, 
it's a good example because just because I can beat someone in jiu-jitsu, it, it doesn't mean that I'm a better person. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I'm a better person. It, it, what it means, basically, is that I happened to get into this random fringe sport before they did. And I spent more time on the math than they did. That's what it means. It doesn't make me a better person. And I'll tell you what, it goes with, you know, if you're, if you feel like you're smarter than someone, it's probably because you've had the opportunity to study a subject or you've had a bunch of education on something or you've, you've dove into some subject. So that might make you seem smarter. Whereas if they applied themselves in that particular, but guess what? They were applying themselves to something else. So yeah, stay, you got to stay humble with that. And also, when we talked about this, when you find, oh, you know what, I am smarter than this person? Well, guess what? There's, some, there's still something that they're better at than you. And what is it? You, you might be smarter than them, but guess what? Maybe it's a guy we talked about earlier, where I'm smart as I can be. Guess what? This person can physically take me down and dominate me, and that's horrible. Or they're better at whatever, better athletically, or some people are really good craftsmen with their hands. I mean, there's so many different things that you can be skilled at. And if you start thinking that yourself that you're that you're better than other people you're going to have issues because in the long run you want to stay humble just stay alive because life will humble you humble you life is hard and if you're pushing hard and you're driving hard and you're trying to achieve a lot you're not always going to win mm. i don't care who you are you're going to get humbled it's going to be hard so many, so many people that are successful, they've got some hard luck stories along the way of things that they had to push through and overcome in order to get there. They got humbled. And if you're winning every single time, then you're, you're not, your goals aren't high enough. Mm. So step those up. So, you know, I appreciate the, the kind of comment, but, um, Man, it's not hard to be humble when, you know, you can just take, like, maybe someone, you know, people always think, oh, oh, he's a Navy SEAL or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of SEALs that are more badass than me, that done more deployments, that have gotten after it more than me. And I know that. that, that that's awesome. I mean, good. Good for them. I, I you know, they got after it. Good. Um so I don't feel like, oh, I did more than everybody. No, there's no one like that. Yeah. There's no one like that. Even, even uh, you know, Mikey Thornton, who was SEAL that won the Medal of Honor, awesome guy. Of, uh, you know, just a, just a, you know, he's a he's a hero. But if if you know he gets interviewed, I've watched a bunch of interviewed, heard him talk. He's like, you know, he's like, oh, you know, you 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 got the Medal of Honor. He's like, it's not mine. It's my guys. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's the guys I was with. It represents all. So there's a guy. Like who's gonna be? If there's anyone in the world that needs to that could not be humble, maybe it's Mikey Thornton. Mm -hmm. But guess what, Mikey Thornton, he's as humble as they come. Because you know what, he also has been humbled by combat. Because he realizes there's things that he tried to do that he didn't get done. Mm -hmm. There's lives he tried to save that he couldn't save. So you're gonna. The, the, there's no doubt if you're living the right life, you're gonna be humbled by it. And there's always 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 going to be somebody that's better than you that's done better than you so just stay humble and by the way what does being cocky get you anyways 
What does that turn you into? What we've I talk about this all the time. What is what does overconfidence get you? You start cutting corners. You start slack. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So you got to stay humble. You got to stay hungry if you if you want to stay in the game. And believe me, you want to stay in the game. Wanna you want to stay in the game. Do you, do you think that like? And I I can't. I mean, I don't know if maybe this is where this even the question is coming from. Um, but if you know when you're insecure and like you're just like everything's a competition like just in yeah. life it's it's like it goes beyond just what you're into it's mm-hmm. just like if someone's better than me so it makes me mad it makes you uneasy or whatever it's like this insecurity kind of thing so when you do it's like if you look at everything it's just this big life competitive like i gotta beat that guy i gotta be better than them so when you are better than them it's like you're still looking at this as this competition, like eh, you know, like you're not on my level, so you don't deserve to be treated. It's kind of like maybe this is a good analogy, maybe not, but like in jujitsu, where if you roll with a white belt, you don't go hard, you don't get satisfaction mm, or whatever. So in the jujitsu competition arena, you're not giving them the respect. You're not going all out like you would, you know. You're not respecting his arm bar, you know. Mm. If you are, you're smashing him, no satisfaction, you know, whatever. It's in that specific competition setting but if you're just an insecure person where you think that all life is like just one big competition oh you gotta smash that person yeah and if you're not worthy of my smashing it's like i don't even treat you like you should be on the mats with me kind of thing but i mean do you think that maybe that's where some of that comes from like if if you're having trouble like being humble it's kind of like, just, I'm better than you in life. Yeah, it's probably thing, just kind of just asked. derived from and it's, it, insecurity. But there's also a uh, there's a dichotomy there, too, because, man, I like to win. Like, like no doubt about it. I like to win. And, and the dichotomy of it is is that I also don't, literally don't care. Like, if I get beat, I'm like, okay, well, I what can I do to get better? What It's not, I don't feel this despair. Because I lost it. Losing actually kind of motivates me more. Right, yeah. As opposed to getting angry. And the worst thing that happens is people decide they're not going to compete, right? They're not going to compete in the game of life. Because they didn't win or they don't feel like they can win. So they go, ah, you know what? I'm just going to back off. I'm just not going to participate in the game. But get in the game. Get in the game. Yeah. Theme. So maybe it comes from not understanding what that means when you win and stuff. I guess I guess You know that like let's say if you, like like the fight like back to the fighting situation where the about you know being a secure part of the male balancing a male right. psyche. If you know that you've achieved these skills, have these skills to win people, you know, who who don't have your skill set, you don't want to fight them. So you're just like whatever. But let's say like you you have a better skill set, yet you're still blowing your horn about your skill set. You know you're not humble about it. It's it's like it comes from maybe I don't know some insecurity. There's there's no doubt there can be some insecurity that charges that makes people super competitive beyond healthy competitiveness. Right, just like in life, like I'm just in life, you know, no matter what. Which again, there's people that are that way, myself included. And, but again, the dichotomy is, I don't think you're like that. No, no, I, 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 I know I am. Well, okay. I, I know I am. Remember echelon front. Remember the logo. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to post this on Twitter too. <laughs> Jocko made the original echelon front logo. 
this is like a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you were like, hey, you know, this is the logo, something like this. And then basically, but you didn't care that it was junk. No, no, but I all I wanted to do is get you the idea. Right? You weren't competing with me. But no. you drew and I drew. But like, it, like as someone who's competing in everything in life, like if you draw something and I draw something, you're like, I want to make mine better. No, you know, no, no, but, but well, see, I wanted to win with the idea. Not with the skill, oh, the you idea. Want to win the war. I wanted not to win the, the war, not the short-term battles. Like who can draw this thing better? <laughs> the, the the war was who comes up with a strategic victory, yeah. which the icon and the symbol for Echelon Front is the one that I drew. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I didn't care that it looked like junk because I'm not. I was did it. You should post that because it's pretty funny. I did it on PowerPoint with like mm. a like a crayon. Looks like a crayon because I I didn't want to take much time with it. I know I knew that that thing would take you fifteen minutes to make on your what is it AI Ill, Illustrator? Yeah, man, that was a long time. I don't know. I was like that might have been. Don't be mad at me. That's probably the first logo I've ever actually made. Hmm. Maybe. Hey, there you go. It was OG. very successful. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> Thanks for trusting me. Next question. What do you do when you have two extreme ownership believers that have to go against each other? Ooh. Sounds like a big challenging question. But it actually shouldn't be because if you think about this, if you truly think about this, this should not be an issue. And here's why. Go against each other? against each other so what are the goals are, are, are these two people on the same team i'm assuming that they're on the same team right they're on the same team so if they're on the same team and we want to win we have the same goals we want to win but we won't work together because if the goal is to win and we both want to win why would we be going against each other we are not taping taking actual Extreme ownership. Because if you and I were had opposing ideas, but we had the same long-term goal, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to take ownership and say, all right, Echo, we got to come to terms here. we got to work this out. We gotta figure. And if you were doing the same thing, you'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Let's sit down. Let's figure this out. Let's figure out what's going to be the best. Let's take it to market. Let's do market system. We're going to figure out a real solution because mm-hmm. we're taking ownership of it. So what's the, little, what's the little nugget that's getting into the system here and screwing things up? It's, it's ego, 100%. And I will say this. Occasionally... The idea of extreme ownership can be very poorly and very incorrectly interpreted as micromanagement and egomania. Meaning like, I'm going to own this. I own this. This is mine. Right? We're not. That's not what extreme ownership is at all. It's... You you gotta own everything, but you don't you don't feel the intrinsic need to do everything, mm. right? Because you own it's like owning the outcome, right? And right. owning yeah. the progress, mm-hmm. and owning the steps along the way, and owning the responsibility of mission achievement. It doesn't mean that you own each individual step and you have to make it your way. That's not extreme ownership. That's micromanagement. Mm. What you know? So extreme ownership is about leadership and decentralized command and using indirect tactics to make things happen and owning the outcome. So that's that's why when you if you have two people that were truly about like hey I'm going to own this 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the attitude of extreme ownership. If you and I have the attitude of extreme ownership, we're not going to fight over anything because we have the same long-term goal. And if you come up with a better idea of how to get there, I'm going to say, oh, Echo, awesome job. That's a great way. We're going to get to where we want to go. We own that outcome. We're going to make it happen. Boom. I'm going to support you. The only time it's going to be a problem is if I have an ego and then you have an ego. Mm-hmm. When we both have an ego issue. And and usually one person with a big ego, it, that that inflames other people's egos. <laughs> because if I say, hey, Echo, I got a great plan for how to do this. We need to execute it my way. There's a little bit of ego coming out. Because now your ego was down, but all of a sudden you're like, what do you mean your way? Right. Well, wait, wait a second. Just right there, now we got a thing. Right. Now we got some kind of issue going. Yeah. You know, we're Now we're working against each other instead of working together so that is uh that is absolutely problematic and i guess to say to put this in a nutshell the with if you're using the principle of extreme ownership the most important thing you need to take extreme ownership of is your own ego and put that thing in check yeah it seems like the extreme ownership as far as owning it is more is essentially take responsibility like at all costs kind of thing for more like the ju- the bad stuff that happens. Oh, absolutely right? the bad stuff. Absolutely yeah. the bad stuff. But you know, but you're going to take because absolutely if you and I do something great together and I was the leader, I don't go, "Yes, that's With right. Me, I yeah. was the I'm you know, you say, "Hey, First of all, this was mostly on Echo. He did most of the work. He did all the, you know, that's what I'm going to say. I'm not going right. to say, no, this was mine. Yeah. But when something goes wrong, obviously, I don't say, no, it was Echo's fault. No, right. I say, hey, that's this was my fault. Yeah. So, you know, I should have done double check on the audio before we started the podcast <laughs> because, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that thing was recording. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't exactly. say, no, yeah. Echo dropped the ball. Yeah. No, I don't do that. It's all him. I say, hey, you should have double checked. So that's. If you truly have two people that have real ownership and they put their egos in check, this is literally not an issue. Right. So, they, yeah, this isn't even a question for that, right? Because they don't go against each other. Yep. They're going with each other. And, and so what are the chances that you, as a person that's really put your ego in check and you're exercising extreme ownership, what are the chances that you work with another person that is exactly with the same mindset taking ownership but no ego what, what are the chances of that they're actually pretty slim this is not easy to do this it's simple not easy right mm. so that means you have to be even more proactive in helping adapt to their ego scenario that's happening and when echo says hey we need to do this my way i'll be like hey you know what echo let's take a look at it absolutely you've always come up with great plans let's take a look at what this one is here and all of a sudden i've disarmed you a little bit you're feeling good about it you're like oh yeah that's right jocko's gonna listen to me because that's that's great that's exactly what i want you to think it's exactly what i want you to think so you're gonna have work to do you're gonna have work to do that's that's what that's what that's what it is it's a challenge. It's work. But when you have the basic principles, the, I shouldn't say basic, when you have the fundamental principles, they are going to work well for you. And when they're not working well for you, don't get mad at the other person and blame their ego. Look at your own ego because you can adjust and adapt and maneuver and get that person disarmed and you can flank them and then you're going to win. Wow, that's so interesting that, that how this question is like that. Like it seems like when... 
like when I first read it, I was like, oh shoot, that's a good question, you know? Yep. When they're and it is, but in a different way because this question is essentially what it does is it like what do you call it? Like a strainer or whatever. Like it shifts, it sifts, sifts, uh, strains out the guy who's not doing extreme ownership. See how it says if they're both exercising right. it, but if they're going against each other, that means there's some extreme ownership not being practiced somewhere in here. We don't know, yeah. but we're gonna we can find out. You know who's mm. going against who kind of thing. If they're both going against each other, well, maybe they both have it. You know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, but there's always gonna be one person. You, well, not always, but there's usually gonna be one person that is got it. That understands it, yeah. and that's going to be working. And this guy is just so good and so smooth and so tactical, and they're going to win. And that other person, that's like, that's right. You know why we're winning? Because I got extreme ownership going on, and I, <laughs> I took ownership of this project. And you know what the guy says? The real, the real leader is like, absolutely, man. You did a great job oh, with yeah. that. And meanwhile, he knows he just, he just manipulated and flanked him and made it happen yep. to the best, of the, to the best of for the team. Yep. Keeping the train going. That's good. Yeah, indeed. Interesting. Okay. I think we got... Last question. Yeah, just maybe one more. Maybe. Uh, Jocko, can you talk about fear of failure and how to overcome it? Fear of failure. So, obviously, fear of failure can, can keep you from taking risk. And it can leave you... Just sitting there paralyzed into not taking any action at all. And obviously, that's bad. But I don't actually want you to overcome the fear of failure. I want, I want you to be afraid of failure. Fear of failure is good. Fear of failure will keep you up at night planning and rehearsing and going over contingencies fear of failure will keep you training hard it'll stop you from cutting corners fear fear of failure will keep you working and thinking and striving and relentlessly trying to be more prepared for battle. So, I want you to be afraid of failing. I fear failure. But, more important, I want you to be horrified. I want you to be terrified of sitting on your ass and doing nothing. That is what I want you to be afraid of, of waking up in six days or six weeks or six years or 60 years and being no closer to your goal. You've made no progress. That is the horror. That is the nightmare. That is what you need to be truly afraid of. Being stagnant. So, get up and go. Take the risk. Take the gamble. Take the first step. Take action. And don't let another day slip by.
And I think that's all I've got for tonight. And if you got something out of the podcast tonight, you want to hear some more, well, then maybe you should go ahead and support the podcast. And Echo, how can the troopers out there best support the podcast? Well, one of the, or the initial way is to support yourself at the same time. <laughs> and that is to supplement um, on it, on it has the best supplements. Uh, I, you know, it's one thing to say they have the best supplements because I like them, but they have for real have the best supplements. <laughs> like the legit, Indeed. you read all the stuff about it, it, it's straight up the best. Anyway, if you want 10% off there, so support your wallet as well. So you're supporting podcasts, yourself, and your wallet. 10% off on it.com slash Jocko. Yep. Solid. Um, also, if you want to passively support, uh, you can do the Amazon click through. That's you go to one of the websites, jockopodcast.com or Jocko, or the Jocko store. There's an Amazon link on the top. Now we have international because um, every once in a while, like people yep, who are yep. overseas or, yep. you know, international, hey, what about this? Because it's a, it, it's a long story, but so, nonetheless, but we have it everywhere now. overseas. It's Canada. The, basically, England. When I started the ones that people have actually okay. told me, you know, like, hey, we're here in the UK. We want to, you know, be down with the thing or whatever. And yeah, so so awesome. I did those. And um, so those are up on both the websites as well. Thanks for hitting me up with that, by the way. Um, Overseas support. Appreciate yes, it. Yes, fully. So dope. And also, speaking of Amazon, the the new Trooper tool. That was a, that was a good, that's pretty. It's a cool little tool. Thanks again, Brady, for that one. IT genius. And jiu-jitsu student, by the way. Boy. Um, nonetheless, it's like this tool, you just click it. You go. There's a link to it on things called the called the Troop, Jock Podcast Trooper Tool Chrome extension. That's what it's called. Awesome. You click on the thing. You just, just like, you click on the thing. If you want to, you click on the thing. It shows up. It's a little icon, Jocko's head. <laughs> and you can even hide that if you don't want it on your browser or whatever. You just hide it if you don't want it there. But it looks, I think it's kind of cool. It's up there or whatever. Anyway, it helps you go to, it makes you go to Amazon. It helps it go through the affiliate link. So you don't have to go through the website anymore. It does it automatically for you. I think it saves save some time. Right. You know? Uh, also, you know, of course, subscribe to the iTunes and YouTube. I think we're going to pump some more value in YouTube. Put some outtakes on there, I think. I like that. I like where you're coming from. Yeah, subscribe to the YouTube Subscribe to the YouTube channel. That yeah. would be cool. So we know that you're out there and you're going to receive these things that Echo's putting together. Yeah. And then also the uh, the Jocko Podcast Store. Yeah. If you like shirts. The, if you wear shirts. Who is it? Jocko Store? JockoStore.com. JockoStore.com. Yep. Some cool t-shirts. I still have, I think cool. I still have yet to see one in the wild, not someone I know. So I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing that somewhere in the world, somewhere yeah. on planet Earth. I am thoroughly enjoying the pictures that people send. Yeah, they're awesome. You know what's funny? The 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 heather gray, right? The, yeah. The, the gray. It's like that's the kind of shirt, like you know, a lot of lighter colored shirts. They get real. Um, like dark if you sweat in them right, or whatever you know right. so there'll be like pictures where i don't even know why i think this is funny but it's interesting because the other one is charcoal gray that's a dark gray so they'll be like yeah i got my discipline too and i see the bottom like looks like a stripe i'm like wait what that's weird how the lighting is or so there's a stripe on the bottom of your shirt but it's not the charcoal gray one it's a, you know they thought they were getting after it's it, an indication so of getting after yes, it. yes very much so anyway i don't know why they thought that was funny but it's, it's it looks funny 
not funny like I'm laughing at him, but it's interesting how it looks like a shirt and it's like optical illusion. Anyway, jockostore.com. There's some other shirts on there if you like them. Coffee mugs and stickers. Awesome. Bumper stickers. Also, if you like the podcast and you want more of this information, there's a book that I wrote with uh, my brother Leif Babin. It's called Extreme Ownership. You can order it through Amazon. Or you can get anywhere books are sold. It's available in hardcover, digital, and audio format. And the audio format, Leif and I actually read. So get some of that. If you want to talk to Echo and I, you can find us on the interwebs at Twitter. Echo is at Echo Charles. And I am at Jocko Willink. We're also on the Facebooky and some of that Instagram. I got like a Snapchat thing. I signed up for it or whatever, mm-hmm. but I haven't done anything with it yet. Yeah. So I got to explore that. But man, the social media stuff takes <laughs> some time, and and I can't. If you want me, find me on Twitter. That's the best way. Yeah. Ask your questions on Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter. That's the most common thing that I use. Uh, I do, I do check Facebook. I mean, I read everything that has ever been sent to me. I've read, I might not have responded to it cause I can't literally can't respond to every single thing that gets sent to me. Mm. Uh, which is what's nice about on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I can just hit that. I like it, right. you know, so that people know like, Oh, he read it. Cool. Yeah. On Facebook, I read it, but there's nothing to press to say, I read your thing. So, um, Maybe I should figure something out like that. But anyways, yeah, you tweet, you're solid on Twitter. Like you get back to people and stuff, which is cool. Because there's some people where you can tell it's not them. It's like their their social media. Person, yeah, well, it's me. And whatever. I was just out where where I just was. There was very limited internet, so I was able to get like a tweet out in the morning, yeah. a couple tweets out in the morning. But when I'd go to start responding, it was you know three minutes to get yeah. to, to to look at the tweet from somebody so i'm backed up right now for like five days four days behind or something like that five days behind actually yeah but see even you're saying that like that you're like backed up it means like that you're you know you're engagement that's good yeah but even then i was reading and i I do man if you send me something on twitter i'm gonna see it i'm gonna read it i might not respond to it directly but i might bro (laughs) i've had a day actually more than once too but i'm remembering a very specific time a day where i wasn't gonna go to jujitsu I wasn't gonna go. I was, you know, today's mm-hmm. rest day. Or what I don't know. Whatever. I wasn't gonna go. We call we call that weakness. <laughs> Maybe call it what you want. Nonetheless, um, when you see pictures of, I saw I, I don't know the the, the name of the, the specific person, but I saw a picture ooh, first day of jujitsu, and I'm like, you know, how you get that feeling when, like, let's say you weren't at jujitsu, and I took a picture of me on the mat saying, I'm here without Jocko." I'll do that every once in a while to like my friends. I'm here without Jocko. And it's, you kind of like, you have this feeling like, dang, I wish I was there right now just to mm. whatever. I kind of got that feeling. That weird competitiveness you were talking no, about earlier? No, it's more you like, oh, me? I want to be there with you. Maybe, maybe a little bit. Break. Oh, by the way, I, I don't know if you knew this. Um, you know, like guys would be like, hey, I want to come visit you at, at the gym or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And to, to me, it's like, oh, you come. Had a, a guy showed up when I was out of town. Yeah. And, That's you know, awesome. I, I, t- I say the days, like I go on this, these days typically and whatever. So just hit me up, whether it be on Twitter or whatever, if you're in town. And, but he did. And because the, the reason that's significant, one of the main reasons what I said too. Where is, was he from? Um, Arizona. So Arizona, his name's AB. AB, the man, showed up, rolled money. Yeah. So, because a lot of people in life, I'm not saying just on Twitter, I'm just saying in life. They always will be like, hey, oh, you do just so yeah, I'm going to come by. And 
you can show me or I'll roll or whatever. And I would say a good 95 to 99% of the time, they don't, they don't come. Yeah. Well, a lot of times they're hitting you up from love plays are farther in the way than, than Arizona. No, I'm even talking about like before the podcast and stuff. I'm saying like your friends, you know, Oh, just, Oh yeah. yeah, Whatever, you know? Oh yeah. 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 You do. Hey, yeah. I'm going to come check it out. Sounds cool. You know? And they never had this dude rolled before. Abby, Uh, AB, AB. Yeah. Um, was he a jiu-jitsu yes, player? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's oh, a, a jiu-jitsu player. Uh, yeah, he was like a three straight white belt or something like Dang, that. We he's didn't know coming he, up. Yeah, but cool, nice guy, you know. That's awesome. Anyway, he was cool. What's up, baby? The man. Thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and and obviously, just want to give a shout out. We talked about some soldiers today, but I want to give a thanks to all the police out there. I, I hear a lot from police officers all over the country. And thanks to you guys for doing your duty to keep us safe. Same thing for the firefighters. I've actually hear a lot from fire. There's all kinds of firefighters. Yeah. And all you guys that are protecting us on the home front, obviously much appreciated. And then, of course, the military folks out there, especially those that are deployed right now, taking the fight to the enemy. Be aggressive and crush them. And we'll see you when you get home. And finally, to all the to all the Jocko Podcast troopers out there, thank you for the support across the board with all this. We appreciate it. And what we really appreciate more than anything is you out there in your life taking ownership of your world and getting after it. So, until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.